Celebrate the Black Friday sales event at Woodhouse Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram in Blair. Step into a new Jeep that you can count on. From the awarded new Grand Cherokee to the capable 2022 Jeep Compass, the Jeep lineup won't compromise on power, technology, or comfort. Delivering confidence and convenience for 29 years. Woodhouse Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram in Blair is your trusted auto partner. Visit us off Highway 30 in Blair or online at WoodhouseChryslerJeepDodge.com. Hey, everybody. I just want to welcome you back to the Sean Ryan Show. We have another phenomenal guest this week. His name's Mark Turner. He's a former recon Marine. He was in Ukraine at the start of the war. He's going to give us his perspective on what was going on over there and what exactly he was doing in country. Before we get started, I'm going to ask you guys a solid. If you like the episode, if you're listening to it on Spotify or iTunes, please just take just a second, leave us a review. If you can, type in at least one word. Let us know what you think. I really appreciate it, guys. That absolutely helps me out. Now let's get to the show. Enjoy it. So when you're in the Ukraine and you're in a church, cathedral, steeple, trying to look at sniper positions. We're not going to war. We're just helping here. And if the war comes here, that's fine. But the war's not here. So some of them still just don't get it. It's like they're in your country and you you still think... It's surreal. It's not coming here. It's surreal though, isn't it? Imagine if in New York, the Russians invaded. It's an unbelievable thing. I mean, think of 9-11 when that happened. You're sitting watching it, it's real, but it's unbelievable. Our instructions were basically, find this guy or find the priest. It's not how we work. I told Zach right away, I said, look man, we would never run something like this. It's okay, it's okay, we'll be all right, we'll be all right. These two guys come out of the car, they're almost tripping over their own feet. AK's drawn on us. Hey guys, let me tell you about this subscription service that I've been working real hard on called Vigilance Elite Patreon. Basically on Patreon, we have it broken up into three different tiers. We got tier one, tier two, and tier three. Let's dive in. Our tier one patrons get all the behind the scenes footage of the Sean Ryan show. That could include behind the scenes photos, that could be side conversations that we have in between breaks, that could be specific questions that our patrons give us for the guest on the Sean Ryan show and a ton of bonus content that doesn't really fit into any specific category. For our tier two patrons, they get access to our tactical training library, which consists of well over a hundred videos. We've broken those videos up into separate categories and those categories are rifle fundamentals, pistol fundamentals, drills, tactics, driving, gear and weapon setups, and everybody's favorite, mindset. Also on Tier 2, you will get a live update from me on the 1st and the 15th of every month where we talk about the upcoming guests on the Sean Ryan Show. 
plus all the benefits of tier one. Our top tier, which is tier three, gets full access to all the other tiers, plus they get full access to me, where we do video teleconferencing, VTC, once a month. We discuss anything from tactics, to current events, to who's coming on the show. I take suggestions and it's very interactive. No matter what tier you choose, the support is greatly appreciated and it is the only thing that makes this show drive on. So thank you for all the support. See you on Patreon. Mark Turner, welcome to the show, brother. Thanks for having me. Man, you are like my favorite type of guest to interview on here. You're really quiet. Not a whole lot of people know who you are or what you've been up to. And we got a message on Sean Ryan's show uh, Instagram account saying that you had been in Ukraine since the war started, went on 18 hours notice, mm -hmm. and you were coming back to kind of recruit some guys to go back over with you. And so I cleared my schedule. I wanted to get you here as fast as possible. So here we are six days later, and uh, you're in the studio. I'm really excited for this. Yeah, interview. no, thanks for uh, you know helping us get the word out, and we're trying to do a lot there. And you know you've been great with your time and your effort to to help us get the word out. So thanks. Well, you're welcome. It's it's going to be a real pleasure interviewing you. So I just want to knock out some of the business stuff right up front. So the reason you're coming here is you're not looking for any credit or anything like that. You came here because you are training Ukrainians in basically more fighting. And so you came back to hopefully recruit special operations types to go back over with you and train these guys. And you're also looking for equipment. So any of these tactical gear companies, flashlights, magazines, what, whatever they've got that they can that they can donate to you guys uh, for your mission over there, you're welcoming. So where before we start, where can everybody find you? Uh, my Instagram, Mark Turner BJJ. Um, my email is my personal email is good as well. I know uh, might end up regret putting that out there, but. Uh, Mark Turner BJJ at Gmail, and then the Overwatch Foundation is our nonprofit. Um, you can that's uh, the Overwatch Foundation on Instagram as well, and all the links will be on there for the website and all that kind of stuff as well. Perfect. I'll link everything below. So if you are looking to get over there and help Mark train some of the Ukrainians and uh, get these guys spun up for the Russian threat that they're dealing with, there's your guy. He got he has all the logistics figured out. And, um, and you're also going on Mike Ritland's podcast, who gives a phenomenal interview. I don't know when that's Aaron, but I'm going to link that, his podcast, below to uh, drive traffic because there's no doubt in my mind, whatever I don't cover, Mike will definitely sure. pick up the ball. So uh, great interview, and our great interviewer, uh, Mike's oh, just Mike's a solid dude. Yeah. But um, so how I want to kind of go through this interview is – Nobody really knows what's going on other than mainstream media. And as time goes on, more and more people are realizing mainstream media is not putting facts out. There's an agenda behind it. And a lot of people aren't watching it anymore. And so I haven't given any opinions. 
anything on Ukraine Russia conflict because I don't trust anything that the that the mainstream's putting out. In fact, they've already been caught in lies. One of them was the was the fighter pilot that wound up sure. being a video game fantasy that they put out there as fact. And then there was another one too. I can't remember what it was, but um, which you're unaware of <laughs> because yeah. you said you don't even know what's going on on mainstream. So I want to get your perspective of what's actually going on on the ground over there, what some of these guys are saying, what you're, what you're seeing on the ground. I know you talked to some high-ranking diplomats and government officials that are giving you intelligence about what's happening over there. And uh, so I want to kind of intertwine that with what you're actually doing over there. And then at the end, uh, we'll talk about what you're doing with your nonprofit. Okay. But uh, always give everybody a gift. Oh, man. <laughs> Did I open it now or what? Go ahead, open it up. Goodness gracious. Look, I'm a Marine. You're giving me a box to open here. This is uh, tricky. You can, you can rip it. Don't be bashful. Oh, my goodness. I don't even know if I should show these. These are like worth more than gold at the moment, aren't they? We just got those back in stock. Oh, okay. Yeah. So this is the first of the new batch? That's the first of the new batch. Wow. Fantastic. I don't know if they'll be on the website yet, but, these, uh, but they're back. There's how many bags here? Four bags? These yeah. are not going to make it to the airport. These, we'll give you some more. These we'll won't make it more. back home. I'm going to destroy these. Thank you very much. That's fantastic. Good stuff. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So let's dive right into it. Okay. So just day one, where were you when you got this call? Yeah, so a um, little bit of background on me. I was in the Marine Corps 10 years, started in the infantry, finished off in the reconnaissance community. Um, been out longer than I was in at this point. Um, you know, combat veteran, all that good stuff. Uh, I have a jiu-jitsu academy now in the Chicago area. Uh, and we have a huge kind of veteran community in the academy. Uh, some special operations guys, some veterans, a lot of uh, police first responders, that kind of stuff. So we have a good community there um, of guys. One of the guys in the academy is a Ukrainian guy. No military experience or anything. Actually, brand new American. His name's Yuri. Uh, you know, I'll talk about Yuri quite a bit. Um, brand new American, naturalized citizen. Um, I'm a naturalized citizen as well. I'm from Scotland, obviously. And, um, and, and we're good friends. And leading up to the war, obviously there was a lot of stuff on TV and, you know, chatting back and forth, checking in with a friend. How's everything going back home? And, you know, kind of going back and forth. When the war kicked off, he, like, obviously completely changed, right? Yeah. I mean, it's real now. I mean, it was real before, but now there's Russians in his country kind of thing. So, and, and I could see it was affecting him. And I said, it was at the weekend, I said, look, let's go to the range, let's shoot a little bit. You know, he's, he's, he's kind of getting into his rights as an American, got his concealed carries, learning how to shoot, this kind of stuff. So I said, we'll go to the range, a couple of hours, it'll get your mind off the TV and out of your phone, right? Just clear yeah. your head a little bit. 
So we're doing our thing at the range as you do. And uh, he's like, I think I'm just going to go home and check on my family. And I said, well, Yuri, you can't, you can't go back there right now. You know, I mean, obviously a lot of uncertainty. It's war. You don't have any experience. He said, I really want to go back. I said, well, let me see if I can get some guys together and we'll do, you know, we have this non-profit. We do a lot of disaster relief, um, like kind of fast action type stuff with hurricanes, these kind of things. Um, I said, let me see if I can get some guys together and we'll do some kind of humanitarian thing there and we'll go with you, make sure everything's okay. Um, not to like protect them really, but kind of, right? To go yeah. with them. And, uh, and he's like, he was kind of blown away by that. And I mean, we move fast. Part of with why we're so good at what we do is because we're quick, quick to act when these things happen, right? So yeah, so 18 hours later, we were uh, pretty much on the way to Ukraine from wow. that conversation to getting on the bird. I mean, it was that fast. And you have, you're married, married with two kids? Yeah, three kids, one's 18. Three kids. But yeah, two little ones, four-year-old and three-month-old. And you're over there with 18 hours notice. Yeah. How long was this going on? How long had the war started before you guys got in country? I think three days. Where did you fly into? Um, a neighboring country, we'll say. I okay. don't really want to say because of kind of what we're doing there and what we're doing in that neighboring country as well. But yeah, neighboring country drove to the uh, to the border. So it was all in all with all the travel and the connections, it was close to like 17, 18 hours. Oh, wow. Uh, airport plane and then seven hours drive, uh, which ended up being nine hours drive because we made a few stops and, and gathered humanitarian supplies on the way. So a nine hour drive to the border. Throughout the interview, if there's anything that I, I understand, there's a lot of sensitive uh, material yeah. that you don't want to reveal. So um, just say, you know, as much as you can. And if you can't go any farther then just say, you yeah, know. no, I mean, look, I'm, yeah. I'm here to be as, as open and transparent as possible. There is obviously for OPSEC stuff, names and, and some places I, w I won't say just because we're still actively doing things there um, and we are planning on going back and obviously you have a massive audience so um, but yeah I'll be as transparent with as much as I can. What type of equipment did you take with you? <laughs> um, we went pretty slick right um, we didn't take any weapons with us we had connections to that kind of stuff in country if and when we needed it. Um, we didn't even check any bags. It was, um, yeah, didn't check any bags, uh, partly because, I mean, look, we're, we had a lot going on. We're doing stuff kind of quick, hard and fast. And I mean, imagine getting stuck trying to do something like that because an airline lost your bag, right? Yeah. So um, yeah, as much as you could pack into a carry-on bag uh, is what we had. We also knew, when we stopped and got a bunch of supplies in the neighboring country, we carried all that stuff across the border. We walked across the border. You walked across walked the border? With stuff in hand, yeah. Was anybody there to receive you? Yeah, so what happened when we arrived in the neighboring country, we started building our network there before we even left. Um, people always say, how can you do that stuff so fast? And I say, well, you know, we had 19 hours of kind of airport, flight time to prepare stuff and to coordinate and then we had that drive so like you can get a lot done if we would have taken all that time 
and planned it here stateside, you're missing a day or two days, right? So it's kind of punch out and go and work the plan as you're going. So we had that network to get us from the airport in the neighboring country to the border. And it was very funny because Yuri obviously speaks Ukrainian, but we didn't have anybody that spoke the language in this neighboring country. And we tried to set it up to where the guy who would come and pick us up, it was kind of like a bad game of telephone, right? <laughs> I'm coordinating with you, but you're coordinating with the guy who's going to come meet us. So we're planning it and we say, look, we have this long drive. We're arriving kind of in the late afternoon, early evening. And now we have to do that drive to the border. It would be fantastic if this guy could fill the car up with as much medical supply, because that's what we were doing. We took basically medical supplies that you would put in an IFAC, like combat trauma okay. type stuff. Uh, stuff for packing wounds, uh, tourniquets. We ended up not being able to get tourniquets in country. I brought a bunch of tourniquets and then we sourced a bunch more. But that kind of stuff, uh, compression bandages, gauze, uh, you know, the same kind of stuff that you'd imagine is in, a, in an IFAC. Uh, said so give the guy a list it'd be good if he had the car packed full of that stuff so we just get in the car and we can go to the border so he comes up and the guy is so funny we called him Rambo because uh he showed up he had like the olive drab gear on and the hat like you know standing there at the airport it's like that's that's our guy for sure like he stuck out he thought he's James Bond or something right yeah coming to pick these guys up so he shows us, he's all excited to show us what he has in the trunk and it's like everything we had on the list, he got like one of. So it's like, oh man, you know, heart of gold, fantastic, thank you. We need more. Like we need this car bursting with stuff. So we proceeded to stop at every pharmacy that we could find. And it's two American Marines <laughs> and Yuri go into these pharmacies and we're like, we just need to gut your pharmacy of all the stuff and you know imagine you're in a eastern european country one two people working in these pharmacies and we come rolling in and just got the whole store they're thinking like what in the world is going on here you know once they kind of caught on to what we were doing they were incredibly helpful and just started you know giving us more than we were even asking for um so we did that five times we basically kept stopping until it was time for pharmacies to close. Okay. And we filled up the car and, you know, continued on to the border, got there really late, ran into, uh, we were about a mile or two away from the, the border and ran into federal police of that neighboring country, told them who we were, what, what we were doing. And they were like, look, the border's kind of dodgy at night and all this kind of stuff. We, you probably don't want to go right now, really late at night. I think it was like two in the morning, three in the morning. You want to go right now and we're not going to let you go right now. Um, in the in the morning, you guys can go ahead and, and punch over. So we just kind of hung out on the side of the road, snowing, you know, cold, middle of the night. There was all kinds of other cars there. You can imagine there's a lot of Ukrainian people trying to get out. What? How many people did you estimate? Was the, was the border flooded? with people like uh, coming coming out there was a lot of people um at the time we crossed we were the only ones crossing in 
Yeah. There were some people on the outside, like I said, maybe a mile away staged, kind of waiting for people to, to come out. Um, you know, but a border, you've had some experience with borders. Borders can be a dodgy place, you yeah. know. Kind of reminds me a little bit of the, the cantina from Star Wars. Yeah. You know, it's just, you have all kinds of people there and, and you don't really know. So, yeah, we had kind of a watch and keeping an eye out and all that. We had to sit there for a couple of hours kept checking with the police, hey, let us go now, let us go now, and then, then they let us cross, yeah. Did you know where you were going before you crossed the border? Yeah, so we had some contacts on the other side, obviously because of Yuri. Um, he actually, we couldn't have done what we did to the level that we did it without him because it's kind of like the hometown guy bringing us there, a ton of doors opened. You know, like if you yourself was like, hey, I'm just going to go to Ukraine and try and save the world kind of thing, it would be difficult. It would yeah. be really difficult. So we had some guys pick us up on the other side. And it's funny, like I said, we walked across the border, all that stuff that we packed the car with in hand, in boxes and in bags, and we're just walking. And uh, we're, we're crossing over and there's this little shack, like a little guard shack. Looks abandoned or whatever. And... Uh, we start walking, guy's like, hey, Ukrainian guy, like, what's this guy doing? Let me see your papers, all this kind of stuff. Middle of nowhere, checks our papers, and we're like, all right, now what? And he's, it's, it was so funny, he's like, all right, now you just go to Ukraine. Like, all right, I guess we're here, right? So two guys come in a van to pick us up, and it was kind of like, they pull up, the van door opens, get in kind of deal. We don't know these guys, Yuri knows of these guys. Turns out one of the guys, his name's Sasha, just an incredible human, right? And patriot for his country. Um, he has this kind of underground network of, it's, it's kind of like a humanitarian group. They do a lot of humanitarian stuff for people, for the army, getting stuff out to the front um, and getting, helping with refugees, kind of getting them to that area and helping them get to the borders people that are leaving some of the, the, the areas where the fronts are. Um, so he came, picked us up and, you know, you get into the van with these, with these guys. I don't speak Ukrainian. Just kind of like, all right, let's go for doing this. You know, I didn't know how influential and how incredible he was at that time. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, having a contact like that was, was great. From there, we, are, we went to the area, kind of like our AO that we were operating out of into his and I can mention the place now because they've since moved in the last few days to a different location, but it was a window and door sales place, like patio doors and yeah. windows. And they basically just turned it into this incredible network, like underground network to support the war effort. And, you know, we, we get to the town, we went there, we went to our safe house, kind of got settled in and, you know, started working the plan from there. Wow. What kind of, when you, did you see kind of who was leaving the border? Was there, was it a lot of women and children? Was there a lot of fighting age males leaving? Yeah, there's not a lot of fighting age males. Um, it was mainly women and children. The males there are required to stay. I think there are some exceptions. I think it's from 18 or 16 to 60 is the age that has to remain in country. They all are joining the army right now. Um, many are just doing it, you know, they're, they, they don't have to be told, 
They yeah. they want to do it. The same way, if something happened here, you and I wouldn't just sit by, right? I mean, it's their patriotism is incredible. Um, but yeah, that on one side to me, that's that's pretty incredible, heroic, and patriotic. But the families are being split, right? Yeah. Because the women and children are are getting out, and even the women and children that are staying in some of the the areas where the front is not like where the actual fighting is not they're still set their family's still broken because the men are all going to the front what how are they are they being put in camps where are they staying where the, the where refugees are they yeah the refugees um some of them are moving so let's say that the fronts are more kind of out east let's say so as they move west some of them are going to towns that are not affected heavily by the fighting yet um or that aren't as bad of a threat as where they're coming from. Some of them that are actually going to the borders, and this is kind of the problem they're having now, and, and, and what I've heard about how we're looking at it as Americans, is let's bring them to America. Let's bring them to other parts of Europe and help them. That's a fantastic idea, but these people don't want that. They want to stay close to the border so that when this clears up, they go back to their life right i mean i'm yeah. sure some of them would love to come here but many of them again their husbands their fathers their brothers are at the front yeah so they don't want to come to tennessee yeah. or chicago right that now makes sense. they want to be close to home so it puts a lot of stress on those border areas of those neighboring countries because it's not just processing them and moving them on they don't yeah. want that so you have to in my opinion, you have to kind of help facilitate that, but it puts a lot of pressure on those border areas. Yeah, so they want to be as close as possible. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I probably would too, right? Yeah. You know, but we don't think like that, really. We think of it as, hey, let's get them out of there and start them over. Yeah. You know, give them a new life kind of thing, and, and that's not really what many of them are interested in. Interesting. That's interesting. I'm glad we just went into that. So you're at the underground facility and what's and so what starts to develop there what, who are you meeting yeah it was uh so to set the scene of that like i said it's this kind of underground war effort thing kind of reminds you of like a world war ii movie when you see that kind of stuff going on the whole town is involved right you have women and children making kami netting in the gymnasiums you have everybody helping out Anybody that has any kind of, you know, there was a steel guy there talking to us about making plates and, and seamstresses helping out with this, that, or the next thing. Uh, doctors, nurses, everybody's helping out. And uh, we go in there and just start, okay, how can we help? We do our med drop with the supplies. We're explaining to them, like, look, explaining to them about like an IFAC kit. Here's what you need in there. Here's a box of stuff. You need to make these kits up here's what goes into that and we just start making connections looking for stuff to do looking for ways we can help and somebody mentions about the the military uh there's a military base in town and what happened was when the war kicked off they had about two hundred thousand people join the armed forces in a weekend wow so you can imagine the strain i mean if 200,000 people enlisted in our military on a weekend, we'd struggle to process all that, right? 
So they had a lot of guys who had no experience, no training, anything like that, no uniforms, um, no gear. And we had heard the military had some strain. They set up these territorial defense units, I think. Most of the people listening to this will have heard the like the Foreign Legion thing that Ukraine started, right? Where anybody can come over and we'll arm them and all this kind of stuff. We weren't in contact with any of that. Um, but these territorial defense units originally were set up to protect local areas. So like your town would have a territorial defense unit made up of people from that town and they would protect the area. Turns out with everything going on, these territorial defense units are also getting sent to the front. No training, no wow. gear. Some of them haven't even touched a rifle till they get there. How far in are you into Ukraine? Um, from, the, from the border? Yeah. We'll say a couple hours, let's say. Can you name the town? No. Okay. No, just because there's... So, and, and the reason why is what Russia's doing right now to these western areas, they know they're getting a lot of help from the western areas of Ukraine. They know okay. they're getting help from the neighboring countries. So they're sending saboteurs out to those areas to mark targets, right? I mean, there's already been some issues where some of the areas in the west, there's, there was that location kind of close to um, the Polish border that just got bombed yeah. because they found out they were training these kind of units there. And, you know, so I don't want to say the area for understand for those kind of reasons um for, for those people's protection and then for mine as well because i'm probably going back there um and if they know that americans are there obviously that's bad as well so um we found out this this army base and basically just went knocked on the door and told the guard like hey here's who we are who's in charge get us in front of somebody who's in charge so we end up in front of this colonel and, uh, you know, he was a tank commander. Now he's dealing with all these infantry type guys. The major that was working under him was uh, in the army a long time ago. When he was done in the army, he was a uh, salesman for like aquatic type stuff like aquariums fish and, and aquariums yeah all of a sudden ominous dominus you're a major in the army now right running these guys and he was an artillery guy so we go in and we told the colonel we said look we're gonna be here for the next x amount of days here's who we are if you need any help let us know we were not going there to train ukrainians we weren't going there to fight you know we were going there to take yuri home and this is kind of part of how everything spiraled and we you know got more involved and more involved um he was very kind of skeptical of us at first i mean i don't think he thought we were up to anything um like he didn't think we were russian saboteurs or anything but he just kind of was who are you and why are you doing this you know um and he said i'll tell you what we're doing defensive positions around the town and around the base kind of we know what we're doing, but we'd like some advice on what we've done. And if you have any advice on improvements we could make, let's talk about it. So he starts showing us around the base. We like this, we would add that, we'd get rid of this, kind of giving them our opinion on it, like a site survey. And uh, he says, after that, he's like, okay, 
So he starts showing us surrounding buildings in the area that they have kind of taken over and set up defensive positions in. And I was kind of impressed with that because you couldn't tell. I mean, I hadn't been in the town that long, but you couldn't tell there were they were doing this stuff in these adjacent buildings and other buildings. And then um, some other places, uh, like I with the video we had with the clock tower and that kind of stuff. Is this the one where you're in, uh, setting up a sniper hut? Yeah, and like a like a you know OP kind of thing for for them. Hey guys. Let me take just a minute to tell you about our sponsor, BetterHelp. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P. Many of you know I've suffered from social anxiety and it took me three and a half years of in-person therapy to overcome that. That was the only solution I had at the time. Well, now there's a better solution and that's BetterHelp. At BetterHelp, you can connect in a safe and private online environment you never have to step foot in an office, and you never have to wait in a waiting room. You can talk with a licensed therapist, that's a licensed therapist, from the comfort of your very own home. They specialize in everything from depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, family conflicts, trauma, sleeping, anger, and self-esteem. Everything and anything you share is 100% confidential. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com Sean. Join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash Sean. Now let's get back to the show. All right. So when you're in the Ukraine, and you're in a church, cathedral, steeple, trying to look at sniper positions, and there's pigeon shite everywhere. This is part of the deal. We're at the top of this tower, it's a pain just getting up here. All right, I'll be back. So we're on top of the observation post sniper position for the Ukrainian army in this town and they're getting set up for a potential attack so we're helping them scout some positions and uh, hey Zach come over here and uh, take a look at some good vantage points for them and uh you know we're, we're looking at that stuff giving them a good site survey helping them out changing some stuff and he's like okay he kind of building trust with them then and again in the beginning he was very short with us very wasn't being rude wasn't being dismissive but you could tell he didn't really know and then by the end of doing all that site survey he's like okay i think these guys can help he goes would you guys be interested in training the men yeah right we'll help you um start asking him about experience, this kind of thing. And he kind of was like almost embarrassed and being like, look, no experience. They don't know what they're doing. We don't really know how to train them. It's not our thing, but we have these guys and if you can help. So, okay, come back tomorrow and we'll start training the men, right? 
so he connected us with the major and uh, and then that was that so we did a lot of our training in the mornings how well equipped are they what are they they're not I mean we went there on the first day and it was it was like a movie right we show up two hard charging marines ready to train these guys and you had fathers and sons you had old men you had uh, no, people no. who no. never would have joined the military never would have set up to fight. I mean, they're there with Adidas tracksuits on and gym shoes, and it's three inches of snow and 25 degrees. Wow. And, you know, because they just didn't have enough uniforms. And our thing was like, okay, what these guys are doing is pretty incredible. Like I said, you and I would do it, but it's still incredible. It's incredible that you have to do that. Yeah. Join, join the military because people are invading your country. So... But then imagine you do that, you know, you served. Imagine you served and you don't even have a uniform. Do you yeah. know what I mean? I mean, I'm a Marine. Uniforms are important to us, right? I mean, our uniform's special to us. It, make, it, it helps make you be who you are as a, as a warfighter, you know? And they didn't have that. Some of them, they didn't have weapons. They don't have deuce gear. They don't have chest rigs. They don't have armor. They don't have IFACs. They, have, they don't have boots. They have nothing. Some of them didn't have rifles. We had guys that were using icicles during training. Icicles. For mock rifles? Yes. Wow. Sticks. A guy used a water bottle. Could you imagine doing a workup to go on deployment using an icicle as your rifle? No. <laughs> I mean, no. I can't. And so you're standing in front of 35 guys on that first day and the only thing they have is a piece of yellow ribbon tied around their arm to show yeah. that they're Ukrainians when they're That's out how they're them. identifying each yeah. other. And the Russians are wearing red. Red, because some of them don't have uniforms either. So they're wearing a red piece of ribbon. The Ukrainians are wearing, it's like paintball in the backyard. The Russians don't have uniforms? Some of them know because they've, they're doing, they've had a lot of conscripts. It's not all Russian army. They have a lot of conscripts that they're using from from some of the southern and eastern regions of Ukraine that the Russians have basically been there since 2014. Um, and they're bringing people in from all over. Syria, you know. They're bringing people in from Syria? Yeah, there's Chechens there. There's Chechens on both sides as well. So one of the ways they're identifying... Chechens are probably the most nasty warfighters known to man. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we dealt with some of them in Iraq, obviously, as well, right? I mean, yeah. whatever, something's going on, those guys pop up, but... Very interesting for me to learn that they're actually on both sides. There's Chechens fighting for Ukraine and fighting for Russia as well. Um, but yeah, that's what they're running around with, ribbon on their arm and no gear, you know. And it's it's cold and we're going to be out here training. And we were, we were pretty tough on them. Um, how many... How many... What is like the man-to-gun ratio? How many men are there? How many guns are available for this particular? For, so we trained, we ended up training two different units. One was a little more equipped than the other. Um, because one was kind of, was fed from the actual army. The other one was this straight territorial defense that was spun up in a couple of days. Um, I'd say... Let's say you have a platoon size, 30 people. You'd have 
10, 12 of them with no rifles. 10 to 12 with no rifles. You'd have the odd, like, PK sprinkled in, um, you know, but no no kind of squad set up, no team set up. Where did they get the guns? They're getting whatever they can. They're, they're getting them through kind of logistics, supply type stuff, right? Yeah. Um, nobody was using, like, personal weapons or anything. It was, um, it's all whatever they could scratch up from the military, right? And, and you know, all... They're just scrounging, trying to protect yeah. themselves. This is why the Second Amendment's so important. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. And the first day, they're all running around. These guys have no training. They're running around, magazine in, condition one with an AK. They're yeah. like, clear and safe, right fucking now. <laughs> right, like, I'll help you, but I'm not taking around here because some yeah. guy doesn't know what he's doing. So, um, yeah, even weapon safety, weapons handling. It's kind of like, here, Sean, here's a rifle. Yeah. You know. Day one, week one. You're hoping they're... Where's the they, trigger? Hoping they can point it in the right direction, you yeah. know. So it was a lot of that. Um, and, you know, we were tough on them just because of the... The kind of gravity of the situation, right? And and it was kind of long training sessions, putting them through their paces on stuff, basic stuff. Mm-hmm. Fire maneuver type stuff, basics of patrolling, hand and arm signals weapons handling uh you know weapons manipulation that kind of stuff very basic like to say you or i um but it was difficult for them obviously and you know they're not in the greatest of shape a few days ago they were whatever they were in life now all of a sudden you know and we kind of good cop bad cop that you know the same way you know you experienced that at your selection processes we experienced that our selection processes you're not really mad at them. You're motivating them. You're pushing the same thing that, yeah. that we've seen. Um, and we just kind of naturally good cop, bad cop that. And I can get pretty fiery and emotional. And so Zach was kind of playing the, the good cop, um, you know, but it was serious. And we had to, if we saw they were losing focus or we saw that they were getting tired, it's like, Hey, there's no Russians in my country, right? They're here and you're, and they're not next door. They're here. Take this shit serious. And let's get to work right because this is gonna happen you're gonna go to the front and I always thought like I remember 18 years old you know you're at boot camp and this was before 9-11 nothing really going on in the world right and I remember the drill instructors like hey you guys are going down range and in boot camp you have obviously your infantry your combat MOS is in there with like supply in there with guys who are you know handing out towels at the rec center for the next four years whatever and you're like come on the guy we're not going to war kind of thing there's no war right yeah. then 9-11 happens everybody goes it's, so for them it's that they may be thinking look we're territorial defense we're not going to war we're just helping here and if the war comes here that's fine but the war's not here we had to set that expectation for them and I'm glad we did because now those units are at the front wow so that so some of them still just don't get it it's like they're in your country, and you you still think it's surreal. It's not though. coming here. It's surreal, though, isn't it? I mean, imagine yeah. right now we're sitting here. Imagine if in New York, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, the Russians invaded. Yeah. But we're here, right? It's an unbelievable thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, think of nine eleven when that happened. You're sitting watching it. It's real, but it's unbelievable. Yeah. So I think. 
and it was so early, I don't really think they it had really hit them yet. They had done this incredibly patriotic thing. They had signed up. And this was before they were, I mean, these guys signed up before. Now everybody's kind of forced to sign up, right? But these guys signed up before that was even put in place. So they've done an incredible thing, but they just, you know, the same way you or I, you wouldn't feel the full aspects and the full kind of gravity of that at that time. Yeah. So we're trying to paint that picture for them. And, you know, like a funny story when the, the air raid sirens would go off every night. And uh, one time they went off during the day when we were training. And the guys were kind of freaked out. You know, what should we do? Should we take cover? Should we, you know, they're talking to the major, they're talking to kind of their platoon leadership and all this. And I lost my mind, right? I'm like, look, we're not hearing any, we're hearing sirens, we're not hearing any impacts. We're not stopping and going inside and going to a basement for a siren. We had to give them a little bit of a chewing, give them the whole, if you don't have any, if you don't hear any impacts, we don't really care. I mean, we care, but unless that stuff's landing near us, we're all right. But this is, uh, this is life in the Ukraine at the moment. You know, if a round lands there, we'll go inside. We're training, right? Rounds are gonna be coming at you down range. You're not going inside yeah. when that starts happening. So setting that expectation with them because they're civilians and getting them into that, you know, kind of trying to pump them up. You know, we never broke them down. We weren't thrashing them. We weren't, you know, making life miserable for them like we've experienced. It wasn't about that. It was about lifting them up getting them the right training so they could perform. Breaking them down is not gonna, they're already broken down. Their country's been invaded, right? So it was it was building them up and kinda enabling them to be able to fire and move in the right direction and, you know, defend their country when they have to, when they have to do it. So, you know, I think we hit the ground running training those guys, but we definitely got better at it as the days went by and you know, the two groups that we trained were very different. Um, funnily enough, the actual military unit that was fed from the military unit, it was a few days into the war, but they already were starting to get burnt out because their command, their leadership had them doing patrols, standing watch, training, and they were not living in the best of conditions at all. Um, and they were pretty burnt out. So even talking to the leadership and saying like, hey, think of the threat level where we are right now. Yeah, they need to protect the base. They need to be patrolling properly, like sentry type patrols, and they need to be standing guard properly. But you can't be burning them out right now because by the time you get to the front, you know, yeah, they're, they're going to be gassed out. The actual volunteers will call them. They were more motivated, more inspired, more energetic than the regular army guys wow were, which was pretty interesting because we had to train them differently because of that yeah you know we had to treat them differently because of that um so yeah that was that was pretty interesting i mean the first day we went to the regular army base and we met uh a captain there we met the major there he was pretty locked on but um and you could tell his head was spinning he had a lot going on and he actually cut a meeting short with us to go see a friend of his that had been shot 
on the front. And, and we were kind of thinking, like, what do you mean you're leaving your men to go see your friend at the front? Yeah. You, you know what I mean? If, if it was, a, you know, an 05 that just up and leaves the guys to go see his buddy, we wouldn't do that here, right? I mean, that's terrible. Your friend got shot. Hopefully he's okay. Everything good. But you don't leave your guys to go do that. But he did. I mean, it was just interesting, right? Yeah. I mean, that's something I hadn't seen before. And we worked for the captain there. And the first few days we were there, you could tell that guy was just wrecked. So stressed out, so strung out. Um, you know, you, the weight of the world's on the guy. And we just told him, look, man, your guys need you to be effective. You need to get your sleep. You need to, you know, get yourself. You need to be eaten. And and by the end, he kind of, you know, the, the good thing was they were very receptive to whatever we told them. Um and on the same with the defensive positions, we'd be in town the rest of the day working our humanitarian stuff and our contacts and our network and all this. And you'd see the guys filling sandbags, building, you know, bunkers and, and changing some stuff up and, and all this. It was, I mean, they took what we said seriously and right away got into action with the stuff. You know, when we left a group in the morning, we would tell the officer, here's how you need to train the guys the rest of the day and basically gave them their training plan for the rest of the day. Here's what we want you to work on for tomorrow and say like, we'd have you demonstrate it, not let the rest of the guys do it, practice it, but you need to work on this for tomorrow. It's the first thing we're gonna do when we come back. And we did that as a way to evaluate how well they were training. Because if we came back the next day and they looked like garbage, we, I mean, we, you'd know if you showed somebody how to clear a room and said, okay, practice this, I'll be back tomorrow. And you come back tomorrow, let me see it. And it was garbage, you know they didn't practice the day before. Yeah. So we put these kind of things in place just to, number one, help us see where the guys are at and to make sure that they were training. Yeah. You know? And we're not getting paid to do this. We're not, we didn't go there to do this. You know what? We just saw that need and tried to plug that hole. Yeah. You know, and... and we, you know, we, I'm proud of those guys because in the, in the days that we were there, they got exponentially better, you know, and by the end I told Zach, I said, look, if, if something kicked off in this town right now, I mean, they're not good. Don't get me wrong. Right. They're, they're not good. They're not like if it was you and I running and gunning, but I'd stand with them at the, yeah. the day one. I mean, they gotta be a hundred times better than what they were. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it was like day one. Oh, geez. Right. But by the time, and I think you've seen some of the videos, the fire movement stuff we had them doing, some of the, the IA drills and all that, um, you know, for contact. We had them breaking contact. Uh, we didn't get too crazy into any ambushes and, and all that kind of stuff. But um, as far as fire movement goes, they were pretty locked on by the end of it communicating. You know, it was, uh, it was impressive. They took it, both groups took it very seriously and, and got to a decent level. And... You know, it's kind of emotional because when we left, it was like two, three days. I've only been back for like a week. Two, three days after we got back, we got word that that unit, the one unit went to the front already. Wow. And so you're like, man, it's, it's pretty heavy, right? Because I think if we weren't there... The army unit went to the, the front? The army unit went to the front, yeah. And uh, if we weren't there and didn't train those guys... Imagine how they would have been going to the front. Yeah. You know, at least now they had something. How far were you guys from the front? Um, 
we'll say, I don't know, maybe five hour drive. A five hour uh, drive? Well, to go way out east, yeah, I mean, four or five hours. Okay. Now, I mean, the, the some stuff's moving. Obviously. Um, and how long ago was that? How long ago were we there? From today. Today is March today 18th. Is the 18th. So we were there end of February through like, we got back the 9th. Okay. Of March. So, um, well, we got done with them, 9th of March, with, with those units. So yeah, a few days after that, we'd say beginning of this week, we got word that they were at the front. Wow. Still with no, no uh, body armor, no helmets. Never uh, going to the front. Going to the front, yeah. Hopefully, you know, God willing, they, they uh, had some gear like that for them there. Um, but these guys were running around with AK mags in their pockets. You know, no. I mean, could you even imagine training without gear, let alone, you know. And we, one story that happened at the kind of the underground place was, I said, look, there's a team of seamstresses in town. They want to know how they can help. And my partner, he had done some R&D for some nylon companies since he's been out, um, designing different things. And, and he actually tested some of them with the Marine Corps, some, some products. So he's like, hey, let's see if we can get these seamstresses to make chest rigs. So we <laughs> we start designing this chest rig, showing it to the seamstress, and she's kind of looking like, never made anything like this before, but let's give it a crack, you know. And she comes back the next day, and it kind of was a disaster, right? It was not up to scratch at all. It was a prototype, but it was it was terrible, right? Good effort, but no. So, and I remember in Iraq, when we were doing vehicle-borne stuff, I was often in the turret. And so I kind of went slick with gear when I was in the turret, right? My gear was all down inside the inside the gun truck. So what I did have, though, was a bandolier. One of those old-school bandoliers. going to say this. Slinging it over, right, yep. with the three mags in there. So I said, maybe we just make a bandolier, you know? And so we designed a bandolier. And she comes back the next day and it was fantastic, right? It was, they were worried about it like moving obviously. So it was slung across and it had a tie around the waist as well to secure it. So it's sitting on your side, you know, obviously stuff you could use in a vehicle as well, right? Like remember like training in a, inside a vehicle. So we saw it, we loved it and we have pictures, right? Uh, and you can show those. Um, we took it to the colonel and we walked in, we told, he didn't know we were doing this, we told him, hey, what do you think of this? And this is a guy, again, weight the world on his shoulders. He has all this stuff going on in his town. You know, imagine the stress of that guy, a, a colonel during wartime, right? And he just lit up like a Christmas tree. He was so happy. And so we went back and we told her, we said, look, make as many of these as you can. 25 people, and she just started bursting out crying. And she goes, and it's it's very emotional. She was like, I can't believe that I'm going to have such an effect on the war. Wow. You know what I mean? I mean, tears. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm crying about that. Because she just broke down and something she made with her hands. These guys have nothing. But now they have that because of her and her team. 
And so they've made videos. Um, I'll see if I can get you the video of them like actually sewing them. Sewing machines. It's not commercially produced, right? Sewing machines by hand, making these bandoliers. Velcro, I mean, fantastic. Nice kind of same material like our camis are made of. You know, okay. pretty heavy duty. They'll, they'll, be, they'll be fine. They'll be uh, good. But those guys are using those at the front. Wow. So they went from AK mags in their pockets to at least now they have a piece of gear. Yeah. You know, so, and that's why we need companies, you know, when I was in the Marine Corps, there were a lot of, you know, you had your Black Hawk, you had some of these aftermarket type nylon companies that make incredible gear. Nowadays, my goodness, it's, it's, I look at some of the gear or somebody tells me about some of the gear that's out there now, I'm like, man, that's fantastic, right? Make, makes you want to go enlist again, just to use some of that, <laughs> just to use some of that gear, right? Um, and I know many of these companies are started by veterans who have used or needed this gear. And everyone talks about, hey, we're doing this for the end user. We're doing this for the end user. Well, you know what? These guys are the end, end user. Yeah. And they need that. They need that stuff. And look, I get it. It's a business. I get it. The pandemic's happened. It's, it's tough. I'll try and raise, you know, I'll raise money and buy it at cost or whatever. But if any of these companies can donate it's going to the end user, like the real end user yeah. who has nothing else. It's not like, hey, I have the stuff that supply issued me and I just want better kit. It's not that. It's these guys have nothing. Yeah. You know, so, and there are some guys that have already contacted us, like the guys at GBRS have, uh, are putting something together to try and help with some gear. And, you know, those guys are incredible and, and that's going to be great if, if that pans out. But they need more. Right. We need big companies. Yeah, we need we need companies. We need and like I said, we'll figure something out. You know, I, I I under I'm not saying give everything away. If you can do that, that's amazing. But I understand these. It's business, right? We'll try and make it happen. We have connections to diplomats in that country, um, and you know some high ranking officers that they know it's a desperate need. Yeah. If we can get these companies money, we will. If they can donate, that would be incredible as well. But this is anything too. Anything. This is this is plate carriers. This is helmets. camis, helmets, flashlights. They don't have uniforms. Facts, boots, socks, all We're, this kind of stuff. We have the um, we have the the pattern for the uh, camouflage uniforms that they have. I think it's MM fourteen is the pattern. I think. Um, so if anyone can mass produce tops and bottoms in that pattern, that would be fantastic as well. They don't have uniforms. And like I said, something as small as a uniform makes a big difference. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Well, it boosts the confidence. Exactly. And, and, you know, same with any kind of gear, anything. It does, if you, if you're a company there now, gloves gloves everything that you have you have stuff that you know you're not going to move hey yeah. this product just didn't sell nobody uh, hey maybe this is a product something you came out this is the older version these guys will take it you know i'll take it yeah so um yeah i mean i'm not I'm, uh, 
I'm interjecting here with a plug, but like, get a hold of me if you're one of these people. Yeah. And you can really make a, a difference to these guys because, um, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty incredible what they're doing with what they have as well. Well, plug whatever you want. That's why you're here and that's why we're doing this show. Yeah. So um, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about some of the diplomats that you were talking to. And I want to talk about some of the intelligence that you gathered while you're over there and what's actually happening on the ground in the front. Sounds good. So we're back from the break. We're going to talk about, you talked to a number of high-level diplomats. You're talking about the Ministry of Defense, correct? Yeah. So let's go into some of that, and let's let's go into some of the intel that you're getting about what's actually going on on the front. Yeah, so we um, how we got connected with these people was we built quite an extensive network, had a lot of like good connections to, to a lot that was going on in country. We kind of happened to fall into it we um you know we did some work to cultivate that a bit but we just kind of met the right people at the right time and it opened up a lot of doors and and you know when you're doing something like that you, you take advantage of those opportunities so how we or when we spoke to the diplomats was um we were leaving uh on our way home had crossed the border and was driving through the neighboring country to get back to the airport to head home and we get seven hour drive, a couple hours in, we get a phone call. You, we want you to meet at the embassy in this country, the Ukrainian embassy in this neighboring country. Okay, right? I mean, let's go, right? Zach said, hey, they want us to go there. I'm like, all right, might as well add this as well to what we've been doing, you know? So we go there, um, we met up with the contact that we had, and then we start sitting down with these diplomats. The first was, we'll say she was involved in, we'll say like civil affairs type stuff. Very concerned about refugees. She was dealing a lot with that. And our point of speaking to her was the logistical chain. Obviously, I'm sure many people are familiar with, hey, sending stuff to Ukraine, send, donate, all this kind of stuff. It's coming from neighboring countries, all the neighboring countries. You can't send anything directly to Ukraine right now for obvious reasons. There's massive logistical issues getting any kind of supplies in because of kind of bills of lading and manifests and just how all that international Red shipping. Tape. Yeah, all that stuff. So we were kind of telling her, she was asked, she wanted to know from us what we saw on the ground and, and what people need so that she can better maneuver in those channels, like by law, right? And by regulation. And it's very messy. It's very difficult. Um, we, had, we were in contact with a lot of people, other NGOs and just a lot of people who were really motivated to try and get supplies in country and that could be anything from you know bullets and band-aids type stuff gear for the guys down to diapers 
for kids in, in war, right? And it's just very, it's very muddy on getting that stuff. So these organizations in America and around the world are very motivated to do it. And I'm not saying if you send a box of stuff, if you do a fundraiser in your local community for Ukraine and you get boxes of stuff and you send it to one of these neighboring countries, I'm not saying it sits in a warehouse somewhere, but it might sit in a warehouse somewhere. You know, I yeah. mean, it's and, and that's tough because it's tough for me to think about that because like I've been there in Ukraine and I see the need for this stuff. And... I obviously know, especially Americans, how big our hearts are and how motivated we can be and how actionable we can be when people are in need. And, you know, that warm and fuzzy, like, hey, we donated. There's a sticky side to that on the other end. And so we wanted to meet with her or we were lucky enough to meet with her to try and clear some of that stuff up. And it was very circle talky because you know can we do this can we do that can we make this happen can we have that happen and god bless her she's trying her best but there's just a lot of roadblocks for that kind of stuff we have a network where we can get stuff to those to a specific border and we can have our guys pick it up at that border so it'd be like you handing it to me Okay. It's not done through any red, I mean, and you say, yeah, but that's going to be much smaller in scope, but it's not. We can do this with big 18-wheeler trucks. We can do this with, we have a network for this. Um, right now, they are in the process of taking some airports that are close to the borders in these neighboring countries, shutting them down to commercial travel and to things like that and using it simply for humanitarian type action which i think will help because you're you know some of that transportation stuff is where the red tape is yeah. going from you know plane to truck to border crossing over and how all that goes i'm not a big logistical person but i'm obviously living some of this out now and see the red tape to me it's like let's just do it you know you know what i mean it's frustrating so they're, they're trying. Uh, hopefully, some of that's been cleared up since we had the meeting with her. But these are some of the problems that they are having. Our solution is to use our network, right? Um, and kind of do it the old-fashioned way, you know, getting the elbows and knees dirty and, and getting it done that way because some of the other ways are more challenging. Yeah. We're still working on those other ways because, uh, and they are getting supplies in there. I mean, I'm not saying they're not. It's just that a lot of it is very sticky and it's ever changing. So, but our network works and, um, you know, we're trying to lean on that as heavy as possible. One, because it does work. And two, because hopefully if, if we can continue doing what we're doing, getting stuff in there, like we just got hundreds of tourniquets in our way, which we tried to get the tourniquets in another way and it was just a nightmare um we're hoping through kind of validating it that it becomes an example mm -hmm. right and that somebody sees it someone else sees it someone else sees it and and um you know i'm not saying it's the best way but it works and the guys that we have on the ukrainian end these two guys uh, max and sasha i mentioned sasha earlier they're incredible 
with what they do. And they were just two regular guys, patriots for their country, that are literally moving stuff from all over Europe, from the U from the US, from places like Holland, from Italy, from neighboring countries, these kind of places. Um, and they're getting it to their little area, to their little shack, um, you know, their little kind of underground shack. It's not a shack, I'm just, you get what I'm saying? And supply shack and moving it to the front. There's networks of priests that they use that are moving back and forth, secret priest, priests that are moving stuff back and forth. Um, and this goes... So you've set up rat lines. It, it's unreal. And and here's here's why it works that way is, you know, you and I were in places like Iraq, Afghanistan, where the war is pretty 360. It's, it's all around you. This is very old school. This is very, there's the front line and then there's all the lines behind the front and it's moving things back and forth to the front and it's like stuff you read in history books yeah. you know with world war ii type stuff it's that kind of warfare it's very conventional yes so setting up these kind of lines is it's very important and it's i'm sure the military is doing it obviously right i'm sure there's government types that are doing it but these civilians over there are doing it and you know a motivated citizen can be pretty strong. I mean, you know, military, government, there's a lot of hurry up and wait. There's a lot of red tape. There's a lot of, well, we can't do this just because we can't do it. These civilians, they're not they're not putting up with any of that. They're getting stuff done every single day. And it's, it's very impressive. Like I said, we walked into that establishment that they had and it was day three or four of the war when we walked in there. I, you know, you could swear they were doing that for a year. Everything was so well oiled. People moving left, right, center. This stuff's coming in. This stuff's going out. This stuff's being organized and distributed. These people are moving through. Like we were helping a lot with uh, moving people, refugees, people that are escaping the front. Kind of, we did a little processing thing there. We'd interview as many of them as we could to gather intel on what's going on at the front, what's going on in those towns, what did the people need. Um, and those interviews are tough, right? Because, and and I think, you know, I have some of those, I've shared them with you. That they're tough because that person, let's say one example, there was a man that left an area under heavy combat with his wife and daughter. She's 13, 14, the daughter. And he's pretty shaken up, right? And you're sitting there and you're poking him for information. And, you know, He's he's no he's not involved in this. He's not in the military. He's not a government guy. He's he's just a guy. But he's an intel source. And yeah. if it's me talking to him, I'll poke. I'll you know I'll stick the finger in that hole, right? But there's one interview specifically that we have on video where Zach's interviewing him, and I just remember sitting there and you know he's he's doing what a good marine does, right? He's getting the intel from the guy. And I'm just sitting there like, shut up, man. Leave the guy alone. Like, let him, let him be. Let him breathe. Let him think. But you have to get that intel because then we take that and we use it for those supply lines. We use it for helping get other people out. Um, and that's all done through this network that we've kind of cultivated. You know, and, and when we're there, hey, can we do this? Hey, can this happen? Hey, they need this. All right, let's do it. What kind of intel is he giving you? Troop movements. Um... Weapons that are being used, what's being hit, transportation, 
uh, out of the city, you know, like, hey, can you get out in a car? Is there train lines that are working? Um, you know, during your movement, did you see any Russian troops? Um, what? Let's go into all of it. What are they hitting? <sighs> kind of everything. I don't think they're being too discriminatory on what they hit. Um, it's obviously they're attacking some of these big cities. Mm -hmm. We're talking about it, right? The major cities. And um, are they know, differentiating between civilians and no and military? Not from what we've seen or heard. No, they're killing everyone. Yeah, I think what I last heard was there's been more civilians killed than Ukrainian soldiers. Wow. So, um, and I'm sure I, I can't really speak to what's being shown in the media. Like you mentioned, I'm not really following a lot of it. I followed it before we went. And since I've been back, I've been ear to the ground with the guys that are there. And that's kind of where I'm getting my stuff from. The media there, just to clear up kind of, okay, yeah, well, you're talking to guys in country. They're just giving you their end of it from what their media says. The media there, because we watch the media every night there, the Ukrainian media, it's very positive. It's very patriotic. Obviously, it's propaganda, but it's very, it, it's there to inspire. They're not talking about this many Ukrainians got killed in this town on this front doing this. It's here's the tanks that we blew up. Here's the gypsies stealing tanks. Um, which I'm sure those videos are making the rounds. It's pretty funny, right? These gypsies are stealing Russian tanks. Um, I'll never not laugh at that. It's incredible. <laughs> it's incredible, right? <laughs> Just driving down the street in a tank. Um, their media is very to inspire the people, to keep the spirits up. Yeah. I don't know if I completely agree with that. I, If it was me, I'd prefer... If it was me putting out that kind of media, I'd prefer it to be unbiased. Here's our wins, here's our losses. Because I think you run the risk of, um, when you're only talking about the good things your country's doing, if something bad happens, you know, it's war. You're gonna win some battles, you're gonna lose some. If something really bad happens, you run the risk of the morale of the people taking a nosedive, I think, hmm. right? Yeah. But yeah, everything over there is very positive, which, again, I'm not, it, they're not lying to the people. They're just kind of not talking Reporting about. everything. Yeah, I think yeah. they're getting a lot of the negative stuff on Instagram. There's some channels set up on Instagram, Ukrainian channels that are kind of showing a lot of live footage, a lot of the humanitarian disaster stuff that's going on in cities like Mariupol and, and all this kind of stuff where it's just, I mean, they're drinking water out of the drains at this point. Like out yeah. of the drains, out of the sewer drains. There's no water, there's no electricity. It's a disaster. Yeah, it's it's humanitarian disaster, and they're just leveling the city, right? I mean, think of Russia's history. You know, even the wars they had, the two Chechen wars they had, their plan is to go in and decimate everything. Like, tear your whole town to yeah. pieces. Because that's going to break you. I mean, it's a war. Yeah. It's but, I war. mean... We... People, people don't understand war. Oh, they don't no. understand it, and especially Americans don't understand it. You know that we've come up with all these these rules, right? You know, and there are no rules. Yeah, we're the only ones that follow and, the rules. And you know, it's it's very funny. I mean, you've been there, you've done it. I've been there and done it. We follow those rules. Yeah, those rules do get gray sometimes, and you do things that sometimes are off the reservation a little bit. 
But by and large, we're not attacking civilians, right? I never seen anybody attack civilians when we were in Iraq or anything like that. We don't attack or destroy towns just for the sake of doing it, right? I mean, yeah. it, it, but that's different there. When They're we, there to win. Yeah, we follow They're these rules. They're there to rules. take over a country. We follow these rules, and when one mistake happens, God forbid, it's everywhere. And yeah. it's like, you guys are shitbags. Hey, look, a mistake happened. I get it. We don't, we're, we're not in the business where we can afford to make mistakes, but that happens. It's war. It's not like that there. there. There's no rules, like you said, and that's their game plan. The rule is to win. Yes. That's no the matter rule. what. Yeah. And Russia's history has been full of you know, when they start to stall on an offensive, they can't take a city. If they're taking heavy losses, all throughout their history, it turns to the civilians. Yeah. Because that breaks the people. Yeah. And that's going to make the army back off, the opposing army back off, and it's going to it's going to get people talking. And that's what is starting to happen in Ukraine as we're sitting here. What are they worried about? Are they Are they... Are they worried about the chemical weapon threat? Now, I'd say the last... I mean, like I said, we're, we're talking about this real time. The last 24, 36 hours, yes, because from what we're hearing, everything's pretty much stalled when it comes to uh, Kiev and uh, Kharkiv, uh, Mariupol. Like, all the big, heavy front lines, the Russians are have been pretty much stalled and are starting to dig in, right? I mean, they're getting blown up. Their tanks are getting blown up with javelins and they're putting tanks in defensive positions, which now your tanks are just sitting there, at least to me. Look, I'm not a, I was never a general level officer, obviously. I've never planned wars, but that doesn't make sense. So they're digging in and it's kind of, they're showing signs of this desperation. Their morale is low from everything that we're hearing. They're losing They've lost more people since the Ukraine war started in 2022. I'm not including everything from 2014, but this year, end of February to now, mid-March, as we're sitting here, they've lost more people than we lost in Iraq and Afghanistan over 20 years. You know, Putin is, this is what I've read, you know, Putin is actually, because a lot of Russians are upset about what's going on too. Yes. And he is actually cremating the bodies so that the Russian people don't see how many deaths they're actually, they don't want to, he doesn't want his own people to see the stacks of bodies coming back that were killed in Ukraine. So he's actually cremating them in Ukraine and just bringing ashes back. So it doesn't look as devastating as it actually is. Yeah, they've been doing that kind of thing since um, 2014 and not to bore people with all the history, but there's been Russians in Ukraine fighting since 2014, secretly. There is some information about this. If you dig, you'll find it. Um, they're not supposed to be there. Down in the south and in the east, there are military groups and paramilitary groups and militias that have been fighting kind of this secret war, Ukrainian groups and Russian groups, since 2014. A lot of people watching this will have heard Vladimir Putin talk about we're doing this special military, military operation in Ukraine now to denazify the country and all this. And 
a Westerner can look at that and go, what are you talking about denazify Ukraine? Their president's Jewish. It doesn't make any sense. He's crazy. He's not crazy. What's happening with that when he says that, that I think he's referring to, based on obviously all the research you can do, you'd have to ask the man, but there's a, there was a militia battalion from 2014 down in that area of Mariupol called the Azov Battalion. There's about eight, 900 of them. Some of them, like if, if you've heard of the Azov Battalion, you say, okay, they're Nazis, neo-Nazis, Ukrainian neo-Nazis. Not entirely true. Some of them were or are of the eight or 900. And it's nowhere near 100% of them. I don't know exactly how many, but I know for a fact it's not all of them. And that's what he's talking about. So if you're saying you're going to war with the entire country of Ukraine over a small fraction of eight to 900 people in that city, that doesn't make sense to me, right? Yeah. You say, well, okay, I, we never saw any neo-Nazi, any white supremacist stuff anywhere in country. Hmm. We obviously <laughs> were very observant Marines. We're checking all the graffiti in towns. We're checking posters and pictures and, you know, as you would, right? We're checking everything and ref, like going over everything, fine tooth comb, nothing. We interviewed many people, spoke to many people, none of that going on there. Again, your country gets invaded in 2014. Everybody fights against it. You're good guys. And if you have neo-Nazis in your country, they defend the country too. Uh, same thing would happen here. Doesn't mean, it's kind of that saying, uh, all Dalmatians are dogs, yeah. but not all dogs are Dalmatians. Yeah. Right? It, it's that kind of thing. So I get it. The Ukrainian government, it's a government. It's, it's probably not squeaky clean. Obviously, think of, the, think of some of the stuff we've uncovered that our government's done with the Ukraine yeah. Ukrainian government and all that. It's not squeaky clean. But in times of war and when your country gets invaded, some of that has to go out the window. We're not talking. It's not about politics at this point. Um, so, yeah, that whole area down there is being decimated. And, and, and people are saying, why Mariupol? Obviously, it's down there by the sea and it's an important kind of location there. But the war's been going on there for the last 14 years. And like you said, they're sneaking bodies back. There are shallow unmarked graves in some of these areas in Ukraine of Russian soldiers that were there between 2014 and now. And you're like, well, then you get into the long conversation of, well, were they ordered to go there? Are they breaking away from the military and just doing ops across the border in Ukraine? Like, how is all that? That all plays into the war. And I don't think the West is portraying that. Right, it's just yeah. Russia, Ukraine, NATO. How does that all play out? And we're not getting the full story on the why for all of this. Yeah, because I don't think Vladimir Putin's crazy. The guy's been pretty sharp his entire career. I don't think he's a madman. I don't think he's nuts. He seems pretty calculated. He always has. But if I think just... they've wanted to do this for a long time. Sure. You know, this is, and, and I mean. I, I believe you're right. He's very calculated, and 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 the same with China is very calculated, and they don't have to worry about elections, and they don't have to worry about yeah, power changing. Exactly. And I think they've had this planned for a very long time, 
and they've all they've been waiting to do is just push the button. It's all wait, been in place for the circumstance where they and, can push the and button. And they waited until the U.S. was at its weakest point that it's been in, in a long time, and here we are, one year in, and they push the button. Yeah, I agree. You know, I mean, it has been building up obviously since before 2014, but really at that point, it's kind of like. You know, he was working that plan, then 2016 happens, and he backs off. Or, yeah. or backs off. He doesn't do this, we'll say. Right? It's, yeah. He had it planned the whole time. Yes. He was just waiting for the weakness. Right. And they got it. And, and they know it might take a little bit, and that's why they did it right now. And it's very tricky because along that eastern side of Ukraine, many of those people don't consider themselves Ukrainians. They're Rush they consider themselves Russian. They don't speak Ukrainian. They speak Russian. The line divides them, but they don't they want to be part of Russia. Their local governments, their police departments, their everything there within their infrastructure of their towns and communities is Russian. And so that's sticky, right? I mean how how does that work? Like you can't just give that if you're Ukraine, you can't just give that away. They might have to as part of clearing this whole thing up. But that's, we don't understand that whole side of what's going on. You know, I mean, there were things like this with Iraq and Afghanistan too, right? But um, I don't think, and like I said, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not watching a lot of the media here in the US. I don't think though that that is being put out there in the media. It's not. I mean, I don't watch a whole lot of it either. Like I said, right from the beginning, they've already debunked the media lying about all kinds. They, they, they actually found one story that they were putting out that was actually from a video game. Really? Yeah, it was from a video game. They were calling them, there was some pilot they were saying that was running around killing all these Russians. Yeah, I know and, the story. Yeah. And it got debunked and it was actually from a video game. Like the character? Yeah. Oh, wow. And I think they were even using footage from the video game. And that got, there was another thing that happened too. Though they, it was like Miss Ukraine or somebody um, had a an AR-15 or an AK or something. And they were like, look, everybody's armed. And it oh, wound yeah. up, that was like a, that was an airsoft gun from like five years prior or something. And yeah, that, I mean, that's what's good about the internet and the Instagram age and all that is you can get a lot of information very quickly. Yeah. But also you get a lot of that kind of stuff. Well, that was mainstream media. Yeah. Right there. But um, Fox News, I believe. But I'm, actually, I'm sure it was all of them. But anyways, I don't even want to get into the... <laughs> the, the yeah, so they talking with these diplomats, you know. One, one thing, though, I'm go sorry ahead. to cut you off. No, I want to go back to the chemical weapons because yeah. that is one thing that's big. And they're finding all these labs, which um, supposedly are pretty irrelevant now. But um, there is a big, and they just came out again today to saying that it's looking more and more likely that there is going to be, he's going to utilize chemical weapons. Yeah. Are I they mean, prepared for this at all? Are they worried no. about it? Well, I think there's a lot of worry for it obviously um and it's it's very worrisome that you know we see that they're attacking civilians yeah i mean if you're attacking civilians with tanks and missiles what's a chemical weapon at that point right i mean it's the next thing in line it's not well that will that will demoralize them yes. even more yeah because I mean, when you see what those chemical agents are going to do to the human body and he's used them before in syria right yep. and you know um yeah, that, that changes everything. Um, 
the nuclear thing as well. I mean, he has, and I just I just researched this within the last couple of days when when uh, the lot of talk with the the nuclear thing was happening because it was so funny. One morning, I can't remember what morning it was, but I woke up. It was like six a.m. in Ukraine, getting ready to get the day going, and I had like eighteen messages on my phone. It was when that uh, the day the nuclear plant got attacked. They, okay. were, they were actually fighting at the nuclear plant, right? I had like 18 messages on my phone. Everybody back home, like, you guys have to get out of there right now. They're, you know, the nuclear thing and all this. I was like, barely got the sleep out of my eyes. I'm like, okay, whatever, right? I mean, it's war. This is what we're doing here. Um, so the nuclear thing, though, is Russia, we are very kind of strict, as far as I know, protocols on when we would use nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. right? Russia does have it in their charter, their kind of ways of doing their country. It's not like a constitution, but you know what I mean? Where it does allow the president, the, the smaller tactical nuclear devices, the ability to use those, not freely, but more openly than like if he's using it on an ICBM type thing, right? So that's obviously worrisome as well, especially the point they're at at the war where they're taking these heavy losses and struggling to take over some of these towns that, you know, everybody thought he's just going to run right in and take over Kiev, for example. It's not happening. They're stalled there. They're fighting like dogs there and, and fighting the Russians back. You know, I'd imagine there's a lot in this for Putin. If he loses this whole thing, where does a guy like that go from here, right? Yeah. Our president's calling him a war criminal, right? I mean, I don't know if that's just rhetoric, but if you start calling people that, that's a legal term, international law type thing, right? So yeah. if they pursue that, you know, and then if you're Putin and you feel your back's up against the wall and you have access and permission to use these kind of weapons, I mean, I don't know the guy, but maybe he does use them, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't think anybody's really prepared for that. I mean, where does our country, where does NATO fit if there's a nuclear or chemical attack? You know, if it's nuclear and that gets in the air and crosses borders, is that an Article 5? I mean, like, he's. what's NATO going to do? They've all, He's already used them in Syria. Did right. any, were there any Didn't repercussions? Any. No. Yeah. We've been fighting Al-Qaeda, Taliban, ISIS for how many right. years? Do they fall under yeah, this? Yeah, but the, def- no. the difference is if, you know. let's say, he does a, a nuclear weapon and some of that goes over into Poland, let's say. Yeah. You know, is that enough to trigger an Article 5 thing? I mean, I don't know. They're going to have to play all that out, but... Well, they're still going to have to go get them. You're gonna, that, that's the point, you know, is you're, gonna have, not to, going to. you're gonna have to, or you should go and do something about this guy. I'm not one for obviously saying put Americans there. I'm not one for saying Americans should be flying air missions there, yeah. American pilots. But my personal opinion is, you know, I, I'm, I'm also not for like at this point where we are today, the no fly zone things, a big talk. You know, the Ukrainians are asking for it. All the people we're talking to are talking about it. I don't think that's even a thing because who, inf- if you're having that and it gets broken, you have to enforce it. We're not going to enforce it. It's going to be like the red line in Syria, right? Like, hey, we have a no-fly zone. It gets broken. We're not going to do anything about that. So yeah. don't even have it. Don't use it. Don't, don't put it in there and then not do anything about it when it kicks off. Um, but I do think we should be arming them more, which this week, obviously, steps were taken to, to do that. 
a lot of money, a lot of, and, I, and I've read the report of what's actually in that aid package, the military aid package, a lot of good stuff, right? But the jets, you know, hey, there's even an opportunity where we're not giving them our jets. Other countries will give them the jets and we backfill the, the other countries. I know there's a lot of talk right now that that's offensive action. I wouldn't think flying jets around your own country is offensive. I, I understand if you take a Ukrainian jet, fly it into Russia and bomb Moscow, for example, that's offensive. But having an air capability within your own country is defensive. I mean, do yeah. you agree? You know, giving a guy a javelin and having our intelligence department who have been in Ukraine for over a month before this happened, just in the talks of it, the, the, the CIA paramilitary organization was there teaching these guys how to use javelins, how to properly um, use sniper capabilities. Um, and I don't know if this has been talked about publicly or not at this point, but this has happened. Um, how can you say that that's defensive and giving jets to defend your own airspace is offensive. Yeah. That doesn't make sense to me. Um, you know, they are doing a great job with the javelins right now, right? They're taking out a lot of tanks, a lot of aircraft, and that's been huge. But I think we can still do more. It's kind of one of those things like, well, they're doing well, so we don't need to do anything else. No, they're doing well. Help them out on top of that. Yeah. Um, so... When it comes to the nuclear thing, I think it is the more the more Ukraine fights back, continues to do well, continues to defend their country, puts a lot of pressure on the Russians, and you don't really know what they're going to do under that pressure. Is there a lot of chatter between these diplomats you were talking to and the, the guys on the ground that are, I mean, is this a, a so major when, concern? When we spoke to the uh, defense... The, the defense diplomat we spoke to was an attache to the ministry, to the minister of defense at the Ukrainian embassy in this neighboring country. Um, so basically the representative of the ministry of defense in that country at the embassy. At the time we spoke to him, um, you know, stuff's changed now with the nuclear stuff. We didn't get into that. He was more concerned with... Um, they needed war fighters. They obviously have that foreign legion thing going on and you're getting all kinds of people joining that. He gave us some insight into that. Um, and he says it's doing well. They're getting some people with experience, um, but they're getting a lot of people with no experience. Kind of people with very romantic ideas of just going over and helping and not just from America. There's all mm -hmm. kinds of countries being involved. He says, it's great, we appreciate it. But he, he basically said to us, he's like, we need guys like you. He goes, if we, he, he, he said specifically, we need your warriors. If you have any warriors that want to come over here and help, don't send them, don't tell them to go to this International Legion thing. You have them connect with you and you connect with me and we'll get them set up to do their own thing. Um, because they're very short of trained people obviously and their army in general was 
heavy outnumbered. What does he want them for? Does he want them to train his guys or does he want them on the front lines killing Russians? Both. So we are, um, we're going to be helping a lot going forward with the training. We're looking for guys, as you mentioned at the, at the top of the show to go over and train. Um, we're working on how that's going to all work. Again, this was not the plan. This was Zach and I stumbling into this. We made um, some good strides. We, it worked, and so we want to replicate it, and we need proper guys to do it. Um, and so we're looking with guys like that. That will be directly done through some of these channels that we're doing. Um, but he also is looking for people that want to go and fight, like special operators that want to go and help. I don't know if that's like, I don't know exactly his plan for that. I know it's not joining a regular, though for those kind of guys, it's not joining a regular Ukrainian army unit. It's different. Um, I know as well, there are some groups of former operators that are over there, obviously on the humanitarian side, but on the warfighter side as well, that are on their own program and are working side by side with the Ukrainian military. Actively engaging. Yes. Um, I'm not gonna talk too much about who those people are and where they are, but they are there and the, the, the diplomats said we want and need more of that. Okay. I don't know, I, I you know, our government has said it's not illegal to go and do that. Obviously, things get gray and get muddy when you're working on an official capacity with their government. I, you know, we're doing everything through that guy. So it's all kind of above board, kosher, all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, if anybody is interested in that, reach out. And I know for a fact you won't be put into a regular Ukrainian army unit or some foreign one of their foreign groups that they have, which are, they're doing, you know, it's, it's incredible. There are people from all over the world that are going to help. Um, I know some guys are kind of, there's been some reports of guys who do that. And when they get there, they're highly, they've, they've really misunderstood what they were getting themselves into. Yeah. They went there for the romantic idea. Maybe they're LARPers. Maybe they're just, you know, former whatever and just want to go help but when they're there they're seeing what it is and hey this is not what i thought i was signing up for it's war right yeah um but they are appreciative of those guys from all the countries they, he told us he named off eight or nine countries that they have people um going there and i know there are some units like i think there's a group of british guys that are they're part of that foreign legion, but they've separated them out. I know there's a group of Canadians where they've done that. And like, hey, now all you Canadians are a platoon or a, you know, company or whatever. And, and they're, but they're still doing stuff for the army. This special operations mission that they're looking for with former operators is going to be separate from all of that. Um, and we can help get those guys in place. Okay. Um, so yeah, just reach out if anybody's interested there. But it's only, you know, there's a vetting process, so you're not going to sneak into it, right? Um, and that's kind of his, that was his focus when he spoke to us, was the training. And basically, he, he said on the training side, how many of you guys can you get to do this? 
and we were basically how how many guys you need and we can see what we can spin up you know um again we don't really have the infrastructure for that we're talking about how to do that um kind of the intake the the orientation here before everybody punches over but we're working that right now and we're working it with uh are you talking about how to sift through and see who's who yeah and then um how are you planning on doing that um we have a couple of ways we have some are you gonna take like discharge like dd214 papers yeah we have a kind of a protocol of what we're looking for um, but yeah, it's going to be, we're going to have to see your papers, references, all this kind of stuff. Um, what exactly are you working, looking for? Is it strictly special operations yeah. guys? Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we're not going to budge on that, right? Because that's what we've committed to doing mm -hmm. and we don't want, yeah, but this guy's good or this guy's trained, you know, he's done some, uh, fed stuff before we're not playing that game. We need that those levels of guys um and that's what we've committed to do and that's what they want so that's what we're trying to give them well why don't we why don't you just rattle off spe specific units that you're looking for or specific specific mls's um like obviously seals green berets marine reconnaissance yeah rsoc uh, yes um tac p yes pjs yep yeah any rangers any, any of the air force um special operations um, obviously medical is a big component of what we did. We taught them medical classes and everything. They have no medical, like simple stuff, uh, like buddy aid type stuff, you know, to get to, to higher levels of care that plug in holes, tourniquets, that kind of stuff. Um, so anybody on that side, you know, like, uh, Sarks, you know, um, 18 Delta type people, um, you know, corpsmen, regular corpsmen, we will not take but a SARC for sure. Um, Air Force, we mentioned, and um, Rangers, yeah, for sure. Okay. What about SWIC? Yeah. SWIC? Yeah. Take SWIC? Mm -hmm. So, as people email in, what do you suggest? Just black out the Social Security number and... Yeah, for you know, now, uh, you know, on the initial contact, just contact, say, hey, this is who I am, I'm interested, and we'll get back to you with our kind of protocol and what we need and, okay. and how we need it, right? Um, yeah, I mean, if you just start blowing up my email or your paperwork, I'm probably not going to look at it before I want to contact back to you, yeah. right? So, so don't worry about flooding with that. Just reach out, who are you, and that you're interested, and then we'll, we'll go from there. So... Um, we'll have a vetting process and the Ukraine will have a vetting process before these guys cross the border. They'll have to go to that embassy and, and do whatever process they have that they need done okay. on their side. And then they'll, you know, facilitate getting to the border. We have a good network there for setting up safe houses and, and transportation and all this. I mean, the whole network's there that we have. So back to intelligence. Now China is getting involved, and it sounds like China and Russian, China and Russia are doing maybe a handshake deal, and maybe China might supply Russia with military equipment. Was there any chatter of that? Was there, was there any fear or any of that going on that you heard of from? No, the we. Department? I mean, at defense that, ministry. Obviously, that's kind of a new development. Yeah, I haven't talked to 
anybody about that. Um, I think they, being so close to Russia, I think they kind of understand the Russia-Chinese connection that's kind of mm-hmm. always been there, right? Yeah. So I don't think it's a, that's a surprise to anybody, including them. Um, but yeah, I mean, that changes everything, right? I mean, I don't think China would give boots on the ground, but China's got a lot of money, a lot of weapons, and, you know, a lot of ways they can help Russia. So I think that does change a whole lot of what's going on. Yeah, there's definitely a shift in power happening. Maybe that takes away some of the nuclear and chemical threat, right? So it may be kind of strange to say, but maybe it's good on that side of things, right? Maybe Russia pulls off that or at least tables that for a little bit, right? Because if you think about it, he mentioned that a week ago or something, Putin did the nuclear thing, and then it's been kind of escalating. So maybe China getting involved takes that off the table a little bit. Um, it's kind of one good thing and then a whole lot of bad having China yeah. help though. So that's why this whole thing's so complicated, you know. Because then what do what does our country do? Are we okay with China getting involved with Russia if we know that it's helping Russia back off some of the chemical and nuclear stuff? Are we okay with that? And if we're okay with that, that's dangerous as well. Yeah, I don't think we really have any recourse with China. They own no. our supply chain. Yes. <laughs> so right, yeah. You start you start kicking that door in and that could get the hurt could come pretty quick, you know, when it comes to yeah. supply and all that. So yeah, it's it's complicated. It's very complicated. Very complicated. You know. Um you know, on those levels it's complicated, but then again, you know, those guys on the front, life's pretty simple for them, right? Shoot mm-hmm. that way. And it's it's just strange how the whole thing's planning out. I mean the China thing does change everything, in my opinion, though. It absolutely... It was only a matter of time. Yeah, and it's a way for China to get some of their stuff done without directly having to do it. Yep. Did you talk to any other diplomats? Just those two. Um, I mean, those are big ones. No, it was, it was incredible. I mean, we were sitting there at that embassy, you know, to... Two Marines who a week ago were sitting at home, not thinking of doing any of this. And uh, now we're sitting there talking with these guys. And, you know, it was kind of the the echo of the whole mission that we did there. It's just, sure, if we can help, let's do it. We're, we're in this now, right? And it kind of snowballed. Again, it, it, I just go back to, we went there to help a friend go home and see his family. He hadn't been home in 11 years. And this happens and it's just getting him home to see his family and next thing you know we're sitting with diplomats in an embassy in a third party country you're like this is this is crazy you yeah. know um but you know we have we have the ability to help we kind of have a will to help people and we're we're gonna keep we're gonna keep pushing at yeah. what point did you go forward observe so, so you went from the green beret mission yeah to now you're doing your old job, yeah, reconnaissance. So we, obviously when we were there, people kind of were hearing what we were doing. Um, we were, I mean, we were moving and shaking, doing a lot of stuff, and there was a lot of NGOs trying to get there, trying to help, trying to get supplies in. Some of it is very romantic, kind of whimsical, like, hey, we want to save the world and all this kind of stuff. Some of it is obviously 
actionable and is going to pan out. But we were contacted by a lot of people and there was one group that seemed to have a lot going and needed help. They had some guys, they had two Green Berets and two Seals that were going to be on former Green Berets and Seals. I have to make that clear. I don't want people yeah. thinking, uh, if I if I mention that, it's former. I'm not saying there's our active people are there doing anything. Um, that we're going to be on the ground for this team, for this organization. So right then and there, I felt comfortable with like, hey, even if the organization is kind of, doesn't have all his ducks in a row, these guys will be good to go. I don't know who the guys are. I mean, I know their names, but I don't know these guys. Um, and we took, you know, Zach and I kind of talked. He was all for it. I kind of had reservations on jumping in and helping because we had our own stuff going on. And we had a pretty strict routine on what we were doing when and how. Um, but they were going to help us with some supply stuff or they said they could help us with some supply stuff on their organizational level. And, and again, you know, it's just that mission like, hey, you need help, we'll help you. And so part of our day involved setting up an easy transition for them to come in, getting safe houses for them, locking on simple stuff like how they're going to eat, right? Getting food set up for them, um, uh, transportation, translators, warehouses for their stuff, and trying to connect them into our network, which I'm very protective of because of the people there. I love those guys, right? I, I love who they are. I love what they're doing. I don't want to be sending them people that's going to mess up what they have going on there. Because it's, like I said, it's incredible. You have to see it to believe it, what these guys are doing. And I don't want to just hand over anybody to them. So kicking the tires on that handoff was kind of stressful, kind of intricate. It's still kind of dodgy. We're trying not to manage it because we're not there now, right? And and we're not, these this organization is not us. But trying to manage that, and so we actually we actually got arrested because of the because of the, what we were doing for for them. They tell you the story, getting arrested. <laughs> so, in our AO, we were we were pretty well known and very well helped. Anything we needed, there's a guy for that. Anything in the network, anything in town. Hey, I need lunch. There's a guy for that, right? I need a car. I need this. I need that. There's a guy for that. This other organization was trying to set up a warehouse for a lot of their supply that was going to be coming in. Okay, we'll go and we'll recon that for you. No problem. It's about 40 minutes away from REO. We had been in that town the very first day we arrived in country. We went there with Sasha and he made a very cursory kind of connection for us there through the authorities in that town. We didn't operate in that town. We didn't run any kind of, nothing. We didn't do anything to that point. We grabbed the driver. It was me, Yuri, our guy. Obviously, he's going to be our terp. And uh, me and Zach. There was a connection that we had um, that's... It's kind of, you know how it works, it's like layers of stuff. This guy said to this guy to talk, it's like, again, bad game of telephone. We know that connection was pretty legit. Former intelligence operative US 
was connecting us through this other group to this contact in that town. Kind of complicated. We try calling the guy. He says, call the guy. He's expecting you to call today. Calling the guy, calling the guy, no answer. We said to Sasha, hey, do you want to come with us? Because we're going to be, we want you connecting with these guys for the supply chain to get stuff to the front from this area now. No, I'm busy. I have other stuff to do. Thank God he didn't go. We get in the car. We punch out. Still trying to call the guy. Still trying to call the guy. No answer. All right. We, they have like an underground place there in that town. We'll look for it and we'll look for the warehouse. Our instructions were basically find this guy or find the priest. The priest that was working that area. Right? Like two needles in a haystack. Go find these guys. It's not how we work. I told Zach right away. I said, look, man, we would never run something like this. It's okay. It's okay. We'll be all right. We'll be all right. And not that I had a weird feeling about it, but it's just not how we, we were doing a job for another group. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't have done the job the way they were doing it. Right? Yeah. So I didn't, I was kind of grumpy about it, but we go and, uh, we get there. There's still no response from the guy. We can't find the place. We're out snooping and pooping, looking around, trying to like, if you, if you picture like, it's not like this, but like a strip mall where there's a bunch of different storefronts. We're back off the street trying to see all of them, buy some train tracks and buy some infrastructure. We saw some warehouses by a wood mill. Let's go see if any of those warehouses are a needle in a haystack. You know what? Let's go talk to the mayor. He'll know who we are. We'll tell him what's going on, see if he can connect us to this guy. So as we're kind of driving back around town, through the town to go to find the mayor, does a police car not come screeching in front of us? Almost like almost head on collision with us. These two guys come out of the car. They're almost tripping over their own feet. AKs drawn on us, right? Weapons off safe. They didn't say anything to us. They didn't say get out of the car. They didn't give us any instructions. We get out of the car, hands up. They start telling us to put our hands on the car at that point. And there's four of us and we're kind of positioned on the car. I'm kind of the back passenger side. Zach is the back driver's side. Yuri's kind of over the, the driver's side door and the driver. Driver's a total civilian as well. Probably peed down his leg. And uh, these, I'm looking straight at the guy. AK pointed. There's a guy behind me with the AK pointed. And these guys are shaking like leaves, Sean. And I'm thinking... As soon as these guys know who we are, we're going to be fine, right? We're not Russian saboteurs. They're going to know who we are. They've, they'll have heard of us, and they can, call the, they can call anybody that we've been working with, the colonel, whoever, right? But these guys are, sh like, visibly shaken, weapon off safe, guns pointed at us. I'm going to get shot here. In ten, in 10 minutes, or as soon as they can get me in front of somebody to explain what we're doing, we're fine, but this guy could shoot us right fucking here yeah they didn't give what they didn't search us they were scared didn't even search us right put handcuffs on one of us uh they yelled to a guy in a store convenience store to come out go into their police car and find other handcuffs they were terrified so they finally get enough handcuffs they didn't have enough handcuffs for me or zach they, they handcuffed the driver and poor Yuri and the two, 
the two Marines are the ones not handcuffed. No. <laughs> Another, uh, and I'm just looking at Zach like this is a, you know, this is a joke. Another cop car comes. We all end up in handcuffs. They get us back to the police station. They bring in the Secret Service and uh, the Ukrainian Secret Service, and uh, they start interrogating us and talking to us and all that. Obviously, our story checks out. We give them our phones. They start uh, kind of going through the phones and they can confirm everything that we're doing. We said, talk to the colonel, blah, blah, blah. Now, Yuri at this point, he's been our translator. And for people at home that don't really understand, it's not as simple as like, hey, just tell me what he says when you're working with a translator, right? There's a, there's a, a way to it. As we're translating with Yuri, it's Yuri. Tell him exactly what I said, how I said it. Right? If I'm pissed off, you tell it to him like I'm pissed off. And then tell me exactly what this guy says back. I don't want your opinion. I don't want, you know, you giving him your opinion on what I've said. I want exact. That's how you work a translator, right? At this point, though, Yuri's kind of just, he's not translating. He's talking to them. And that's fine. We're sitting there in handcuffs. And by the way, they put the handcuffs on backwards. So we're sitting there like, you know, and that's not comfortable at that point when the handcuffs are on backwards and you're twisted up. And I'm like, maybe I'll ask them if they could fix the handcuffs, but I'm not gonna push my luck, right? <laughs> so he's going back and forth and I'm just checking in with Yuri, like, okay, what's he saying? You know, and I'm being quiet. And uh, he's asking about our contact. Who's this guy where Yuri's explaining? Some time goes by, Secret Service guys talking to us and interviewing us. And this guy comes in with the chief of police. And he goes, is this your guy? And Yuri says, I don't know. We don't know who our guy is. That's part of the problem. We, he, Zach said, if you give me my phone, I'll text our other contact and see if they can send a picture of the guy. They allow him to do that. At this point, they know that we're you know, not Russian saboteurs. They start talking to that guy. Are you their guy? No. Do you work for the, are you doing this kind of work? No, I don't know anything about that. Are you, and they say the name, are you this specific guy? No, no, no. Some other stuff starts going on. Yuri kicks off, gets like visibly like angry and animated. And I say, Yuri, what's going on? He goes, that's the guy. I said, no, it's not the guy. He, just, he said he's not the guy. He goes, no, no, that's the guy. He's been lying about the whole thing. And I'm sitting there in handcuffs. And I kid you not, I could have jumped up and bit that guy's throat, right? I was so angry. The guy, the guy thinks he's in a James Bond movie, right? And so they, and, and the Secret Service guy's looking at me, kind of laughing and winking and saying like, I understand why you're pissed off, man, you know? I was ready for charging across the room to the guy. And so we asked him, like, why didn't you pick up your phone? You knew that people would be calling you. You were told that by your, by your contact that we'd be calling. And he goes, oh, I didn't recognize the number. Um, you know, it's troubling times. I didn't want to just pick up the phone to a random number. Okay, well, why did you lie and say that you weren't who you are? Oh, I thought this was a setup, he said. Again, I could have bit his neck. Yeah. Right? I mean, I was... And then... You know, it was all hugs and kisses with the Secret Service and the police after that. And what's funny, those guys actually helped us. They gave us an escort out of the country when we left. Um, 
and it was cool when they had secret service contacts through those guys and with the chief of police in that town and they had obviously heard what we were doing so we built a strong contact in that area through this um but yeah that whole thing was that whole thing was crazy and the and the the guys were so scared the police officers were so scared they had just found rush they found four russian saboteurs about three four hours before they rolled us up so they thought this is round two there's you know there's more when they when they rolled us up they thought we were russian saboteurs wow so i mean it just then we had to go and do the rest of kind of the op with that guy with the shady guy and he wanted to be all hugs and kisses and i was like man get the hell away from me you know we had to go out to this area and recon this whole kind of safe house and warehouse and connect with this other guy and it was I was like, just, I want to get this done, right? I want away from this guy. And when we got back, I said, get rid of that guy. Don't use him again. He's scared. That's fine, right? I get it. But he, you know, now we're going to be bringing other guys in. To He's work not with the right guy. guy for the He's job. He's not the guy for the job. And we don't, part of the whole turnover thing, we wanted to do turnover with that team of ODA guys and SEALs that was coming in. And their organization couldn't get them off the ground at time. You know, it's like, 18 hours we're there and you can't get these guys off the ground um, to, to do some of this turnover stuff, um, which only, obviously only they were going to have the, the backlash of that, right? And then they weren't going to have that warm kind of handover. But yeah, stuff like that, it makes, you, it makes you realize like there's a lot of people now that are just trying to go over there and help. If you don't know what you're doing, we knew what we were doing. We had an, a, a very... You know, net, I keep talking about our network. We had a pretty good way of, of being able to do things, and we still got into trouble. So don't yeah. think you can just go over there and start playing, you know, war hero or humanitarian hero. It's not easy. You know, yeah. you have to have your ducks in a row or you're going to get yourself in trouble. Yeah. Because those people aren't playing around. There's Russians in their country, right? This is not a hurricane. It's not a natural disaster. It's not... Um, they don't know who's who. Yes, and you might get killed because of some confusion. Yeah, and it, I mean, it was it was pretty real. I mean, I knew, like I said, I knew we'd be fine because of who we were and what we were doing. And it ended up being a great, we got great contacts out of it. Um, but yeah, it was kind of dodgy there for a while. But it was because of that group that, you know, we, so then that's the other thing too. We probably made a mistake there. We should have called ahead. We did have a network there. We had contacts there with the, rescue service and, and with some people there um, outside of everything that we were doing with this other group. We should have called ahead, especially when we couldn't get that guy on the phone. We should have called and said, hey, we're going to be here and everything would have been fine. So, I mean, you know, that was definitely a mistake on our end. And, you know, luckily it didn't turn out too bad for us. Um, but yeah, it's just it's one of those things you have to dot every I and cross every T when you're snooping and Pooping, doing stuff like that, you know, because yeah. it wasn't our AO, and we just kind of took that for, you know, it's one of those things where we, we took for granted how, like how loved we were in our AO, and how everybody just helped us and facilitated everything for us. We we, we could do whatever we want in our AO, and everybody supported us, um, from top to bottom. You know, I I think we kind of took that for granted when we went forty minutes down the road, and. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we just, a simple call ahead to our contacts there, we wouldn't have been in trouble then, you know. But, yeah, that was, uh, 
it was kind of wild and, and you know Yuri was kind of upset about it because there was some local Instagram <laughs> chatter about it and some pictures of us driving around and and uh, like the vehicle we were in and all this kind of stuff and uh, so he was kind of worried about it on a local level people here and all this kind of stuff and it's like you know obviously he doesn't have any experience with this and just trying to tell him like look hey when you go and do this stuff in a foreign country stuff happens you yeah. know it's it's kind of part of the game you don't want that to, to happen I'm sure you've been in situations that weren't I, ideal oh, yeah. it happens um, but coaching him through that was again pretty interesting on a personal level you know because he had never experienced that and we had good jokes about it as well it was it was unbelievable so yeah it's not it's not kids games over there at all what an experience is there any other intel that you picked up you'd mentioned people getting shot outside of a grocery store civilians yeah so there's a lot of um attacks on civilians happening now i'm sure some of those stories are making it to our media right um especially where a lot of the heavy fighting is and especially where the russians are starting to run into heavy resistance this was not happening in the beginning of the war this is something that has developed and it's not by mistake it's not hey we thought this was happening we thought it was a military thing and it accidentally was a shelter or it's not that um you know there's one story where people were lined up outside the store to get food like a convenience store bread whatever and russians came there was 12 i think 12 people 10 12 people just gunned them down um the ukrainians were starting to mark when this started happen happening the ukrainians started to mark civilian centers so like if if a bunch of civilians were sheltering up in a school they would mark that school with something from the air like on the ground so they could see in the air hey there's children here civilians here whatever and those places are basically what happened is the ukrainian army's marking targets civilian targets for the russians Damn. And those places are getting hit now. So there's a So change. the Russians are looking for the marks where the civilians are being held yeah. and then killing them. Or they're seeing the marks yeah. and not caring, right? Yeah. And, you know, that gets muddy as well because, for instance, the army guys, both of the army guy, the units that we were training, were living in schools, Right? They, that was like they turned these schools there's nobody in the school no kids there the schools are not functioning right now but they were using those buildings because they're big they have open rooms they have bathroom facilities and all this they were using those as like makeshift army bases so i guess on one hand if you're a russian military commander you can say well yeah we target the school because it's a military target there's army there that to me is fair game. There's no kids in that school, right? The Ukrainian military is not using human shields to house their military. There's no kids in the school, no yeah. civilians in the school. But if you clearly see it's civilians, you should not be obviously attacking those places. You yeah. know? And, and that is a new tactic 
that they're starting to do within the last 48, 72 hours. They're really starting to do that, you know? Wow. Um, and that's a bad sign. That's a real bad sign. And, and Russia historically has been known to do that. So, um, yeah, I don't know where that leads. I don't know how involved we get to try and stop some of that. Um, I'd hope our diplomats are speaking to the Russians and saying, hey, you know, it's not a, a red line, but don't do that kind of stuff. Because um, that changes everything, I think. Yeah, that definitely changes it. Yeah, and there's there's a lot that's of that, a lot of that happening, and you know, that's gonna be a good way to break those people because the Ukrainians right now. One thing that both Zach and I still talk about and noticed right away was how passionate the people are for the country and how much they want to defend it. Everybody, you know, I I, I talk about that town we were in. Everybody's helping in the war effort. Everybody, right? It's like an old school movie. It's like a World War Two story. Um, from the oldest to the youngest, are helping somehow for the war effort. Again, I, I mentioned the TV is very positive and inspiring to the people. And they're getting great results, right? They're, they're doing great with the javelins. They're blowing up Russian tanks. The gypsies have all kinds. They have a tank battalion now, these gypsies, right, for stealing the tanks. I mean, it's, it's very rah-rah, very motivational, and I'm sure that's helping the boys on the front get yeah. the job done, right? But Russia sees that, obviously. Yeah. And, you know, you start attacking civilians, especially behind their... St if, if you notice, they're starting to, or at least what I'm hearing, I don't know if they're saying this, they're starting to attack these civilian centers behind the lines, behind the front. So with a missile, they're going over the front and hitting people in the rear. Damn. Which... You're, you're not doing that by mistake. Yeah. If it's at the front and you think you're attacking a certain building and you miss and you accidentally hit civilians, okay, we can talk, that happens. But now you're hundreds of miles away from the front blowing up this building or that building or, you know, that's per that's done on purpose. Yeah. And that's not good if that's being done on purpose. And that, I think, could really, you know, I'm talking to some people uh, every day and... Um, that's very troublesome for them. That's making them cry as they're talking to me, yeah. right? That's affecting the people, obviously. Um, so yeah, hopefully that gets cleared up and somebody can talk some sense into the Russians like, look, hey, if you want to fight, fight, right? But don't do that. I don't even know what to say to that. You know? it's, it's unbelievable. It's, it's, I just don't see anybody holding them accountable. Yeah. And, and again, we've talked a lot on a couple of examples of this, like, it's a lot of talking. Here's a good thing, no but then also brings a bad thing, yeah. right? This is one of those things because the Russians or the Ukrainians are doing so well at defending their country and fighting the Russians is causing or it's making Russia use these kind of tactics so then what do you do if you're the Ukrainians do you back off I hope to God our you know look I don't work in the government I'm not a diplomat but I'd hope they're not telling the Ukrainians back off so that Russia stops doing this 
Yeah. Because then you back off, you let them advance. You know, I think, as you're mentioning, we should be a lot tougher on Russia. I mean, I think we should always should be tough. I mean, it's tough, you know. I mean, not even just the U.S., but even Europe. I mean, exactly. they've allowed themselves to get 40% of their gasoline yeah. from Russia. And so if Russia cuts that... We were in Germany. Germany gets, I think, 100% of their oil from Russia. Yeah. So, I mean, what are they going to do? Nothing. They're not going to do anything. Right. Because they're reliant on Russia. You know? I mean, and now, I mean, you see our fuel prices. Saudi won't even pick up the phone for us. Imagine not they will not the even pick up the phone for the United States of America. Yeah, I mean, and, and what's funny about this? I say funny. Um, you know, when I back in my day, when I was running and gunning, I I didn't deal with any of this. No, right? I was doing that job, and you know, a trigger puller, go kick this door in this patrol, that, whatever, right? Now, dealing with it on this level, it's very different. And like I said, I'm not a diplomat, but I'm working with these people. I'm working with this network. We're doing this job now that we've stumbled into. And it's complicated. It's, it's, you know, it's, you think, I mean, we think about it all the time. Zach and I are constantly checking in. What about this? How does this change things? We just heard from this guy about whatever. You know, my mind's full enough, and now it's full of this stuff. And and you know, it it would be easy. It's not my, it's not my country. It's not my mission. It is now, but you know, I I could pull the plug and forget it. I suppose, but it's just a snowball, man. It just keeps getting bigger and more involved and changes every day it's very weird to be on this end of it having been on the other end it doesn't get to interact with with that at all it's very i don't know it's very interesting but it keeps the head spinning for sure sounds like it well let's take a break and then when we come back we'll kind of get into your nonprofit and some of the other stuff you've done and and done and and wrap this up Mark, so let's get in. We covered a lot on Ukraine, pretty much your whole experience over there, the diplomats, the intel you're getting on the ground. Let's move into your nonprofit, what you guys have been doing. And if I correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't this just now a 501c3? Yeah, so the uh, we the status is pending, obviously. It's with yeah. the government, everything takes a little while, but yeah, we're uh, it started off it's pretty recent fairly recent when the Afghanistan pullout was happening I was working with a team or was working yeah working with a team to go over there and help with some stuff over there we didn't have an organization or anything like 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 we do now 
And so I was down in Virginia Beach. I had taken some meetings about going to Afghanistan. Came home from those meetings and it was when the Hurricane Ida was about to hit. So I just got back off the flight and was sitting, kind of watching TV, getting settled back into being home and was following the hurricane coverage. You know, I, I like watching that kind of stuff on TV when the disasters come to keep up with, it, with what's happening. And um, my wife at the time was five months pregnant. So part of me was like, how am I gonna tell her that uh, going to Afghanistan? She's not, she's not gonna care, well, she's gonna care. But my wife kinda, she knows what she married, you know? And uh, I always say I don't ask, I just tell, but it's, it's not bad, I'm not a arsehole like that. It's more, she gets it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So okay, I'm gonna have to tell her, I might get a bit of an ear beating, but uh, I have to tell her. I was just sitting there watching the coverage and they were talking about the hurricane. And I'd never really done any humanitarian type stuff before, right? And I text one of the guys, he's, uh, he's one of the guys on our team, he's uh, a former Albanian special forces guy. He's a savage, right? I mean, he's one of those legendary just savage guys. And I text him, I say, hey, what do you think about going down to the hurricane and getting involved right in the beginning, like when people really need help, you know, like just going down there and throwing it at the hurricane and helping people. And he just texts back, yes. I didn't tell him when, I didn't tell him what, I didn't say how many days. I just basically said, you wanna go help? Yes. So now I go, all right, well, you can't turn a guy like this away, we're going. Rounded up a couple other guys, the same kind of way that we did with Ukraine, quickly, you know. Planned to step out the next day, the next early morning. And I had most of it planned with the guys set up before I went to my wife. So I go to her and I say, hey, me and a couple of guys are gonna go down to the hurricane, so when this thing hits, we're gonna start helping people. She goes, okay. Okay, like that. She goes, well, I thought you were gonna tell me you're going to Afghanistan. So I was. So she goes, on you go to the hurricane. So I was easy, easy conversation there, right? And I didn't even tell her about Afghanistan. She didn't know why I went to Virginia Beach. Um, I think she had a, obviously she had a suspicion. But yeah, so she was very happy to kick me out the door down to the hurricane. Uh, so we went and we, you know, we had no, we had a plan. We just got in trucks and drove south. That was the plan, till it rained. Wow. Um, and when we got there, halfway down, my wife sent an app and said, hey, have you guys seen this app? I can't remember what the app is. We, you, we basically was in a disaster area. You can fill out this app. It creates a ticket. Hey, I need help. I'm stuck. I, whatever, right? And we started looking at it like, hey, this thing, we could use this. Not for that purpose of going and helping those individuals, but we used it to see where the mass amount of tickets are. Makes sense. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, yeah. we're not going through these individual things and coming and getting your cat out of a tree or doing this or doing that. We want to see where all this shit is happening. We couldn't get into that town. Um, Why not? Was, well, the I can send you some pictures as well if you want to post them. The whole overpass and ramp 
completely underwater uh, to go to this area. It's about 11 miles from um, New Orleans. Couldn't get there. There were semi trucks underwater, the trailers under the water. And uh, so, okay, we don't know what we're doing. We don't know where we're at. Let's go to New Orleans. We went to New Orleans, stopped right outside the Superdome. It was like zombies, zombie apocalypse. Nobody on the streets, bone dry, right? Bone dry. The power was out, so everything was kind of dark. And it was very creepy. It was like, you wouldn't know the hurricane was there. Obviously, we learned that since Katrina, they've done a lot to the New Orleans area to protect it from that happening again, because obviously that was horrendous what happened there. And in my opinion, it seems to be whatever they've done in New Orleans has been to the detriment of some of the surrounding areas. Because we found a back way into that town that we couldn't get into. Um, it was, I think, 38 miles out of our way. We had to go around. It was a, a, a town called Laplace. And it ended up being one of the worst hit areas in Hurricane Ida. We didn't know that at the time. We just saw that these tickets were there. We went there, helping some people in the water. We, we got into the town, helping some people in the water and, and you know, trying to get a lay of the land. We, the governor was going there to do a photo op. We were on the outskirts of town. We saw this commotion at this gas station. There was a CBS guy there. Running at this CBS guy, and we're in his ear. Tell us this, where can we do this? How's that going? He gave us the whole layout of everything that was happening in that area. And it was like, you know, it's kind of like some of the stuff we talked about with Ukraine. If you're just doing the thing, you run into opportunity. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The chances of us, if, if we could have got off that ramp the, the couple hours before, we never would have ran into that guy. You get what I'm saying? So yeah. just the fact that we were trying to do stuff, we, we could have also said, well, can't get into that town, let's go somewhere else. But you run into that guy, CBS News guy, who knows everything that's happening in that area, nipping in his ear, he gives us all the information, now we know what we're doing. Now we know where to go, who needs help, what kind of help they need, and we just start hitting the town. You know, we were, um, we did a lot of stuff. We were clearing roads for EMS. They were running into problems with, um, you know, say a fire truck, right? And there's a giant tree in the middle of the road. They're not gonna take care of it for a couple of reasons. They can't have that truck go down and they can't get themselves hurt trying to get to the emergency. So they just don't go or they try and find another way. So we said, okay, we'll help you. We'll go on ahead of you and get the chainsaws and start clearing roads and doing this and so they can move. Uh, cutting people out of houses. We had a couple of people, trees had fallen in their houses and they're stuck in the house. Uh, so we're, we're doing that kind of stuff. There was a family, old couple, very overweight. I'm talking like four spins, like very obese, overweight. Stuck in the house, on oxygen, all this kind of stuff, and a tree had fallen on their house, massive tree. It got to the point we were cutting, we estimated 12 to 1600 pound sections of oh, this wow. tree above our heads to try and 
get the because it was going to cave their house in. They said we've just been sitting here in the living room, and last night the roof started to cave in. Well, you guys have to get out of here. And the news guy told us that oh he my said, gosh. he said, look, if you see people here, you have to tell them to leave. Like people that haven't left, tell them to leave because we can't get emergency services in here or food or anything to support them. So try and get them to leave. Well, these people in Louisiana are very tough people. They've yeah. been through this stuff and they weren't leaving, right? And this old couple, they couldn't leave. They were they were struggling physically. To They, they would have not been able to. But we tried to get them out of there. They're like, we can't go. We don't have a place to go and we can't go. And we're like, all right, well, let's try and get the tree off the roof. And we're, it's above our heads. We're up on ladders. We're tying ropes to this thing. One bad move and we would have been crushed, you know. So we start doing some of that stuff, um, getting food and water to some people, just what we had. Uh, we couldn't give people our gasoline because we needed it. And we ran into a problem with gasoline because there was one gas station in the town and that turned into like uh, the cantina from Star Wars as well. It was very uh, rough there because it was the lifeblood of the town. And they were, they, you know, the gas lines were... I think one day we sat in a gas line for four hours to try and yeah. get fuel and we had brought fuel and then it got to the point where as days went by, no electricity, there was no FEMA, there was no Red Cross in that area when we were there. Three, four days go by and people don't have food, they don't have water, they don't have electricity and they don't have gas. Our fuel supply was getting low and because what we would do is we would, for security reasons, we would stay outside the town on the outskirts and then just punch in to do some work. And then we'd go back. We we basically took over an abandoned kidney dialysis building. We just kind of set that up as our little base of operations. And we, you know, had a watch and punched out at night and then punched out and did stuff during the day. We're running out of fuel though. And it got to the point where if we can't get fuel on this day, we need to leave. Because the closest place to get fuel was 160 miles away. So we're doing the math on how much fuel we have and we don't want to become part of the problem. So we couldn't get fuel. There was no fuel coming into the town that day. So we had to leave. And, you know, we had done a bunch of good stuff there. Um, but by the, as the week went on, just society was deteriorating because of no food, no water, no electricity. And people were pretty desperate. So we got home. We drove all the way home. We arrived home at like 6 a.m., a couple of hours sleep, and by noon we had a plan to go back down. I just texted the guys and said, let's go back and do like a food drop kind of thing. So we got another truck, a couple other guys, rented trailers, and we're going down I-55 from Chicago to Louisiana, hitting Walmarts on the way, right? I think we stopped at five Walmarts in four or five different states and we just walked in and said, I, I said, I need to speak to the manager. Nobody's in trouble. Everything's good. Just need to speak to a manager. Manager comes. I said, okay, we need pallets of water. And she goes, yeah, there's cases of water back there. I said, look, ma'am, you're saying cases. I'm saying pallets. Said, okay. So they were fantastic though, you know, getting us all the stuff. Um, and then we went, we're like food. We're taking food. All right, well, what food? How, how are we taking food? We decided on the <coughs> Chef Boyardee pull-top cans 
yeah. of all the stuff they make, spaghetti and meatballs, ravioli, because it's easy. You pull the top, you don't even need a fork. You just eat it out of the can. So we raided the shelves. I'm sure that day that we did that to those five Walmarts, if you were in the inventory management section <laughs> of corporate, you're, you're thinking, you know, the alarms are going off, right? Because yeah. we raided everything. And we had raised some money. Before we stepped off, we opened a GoFundMe. Like I said, we didn't have an organization. Yeah. We were just doing it through us. We had a GoFundMe and people were donating and, and we have a, a, a you know, my Jiu-Jitsu Academy in Chicago is is large and great people and, and they did a great job of getting the word out and we, you know, we were getting donations. So, But I told the guys before we stepped off, I said, look, this is my thing. If nobody gives us a dime, I'll take the hit. It will be my credit card. Wow. Right? And I'm not... Not asking anything of these guys, except for their time, and their and their effort. You know, I put it all on me. But I believed people would support what we were doing, and they did. It was great, and so we were able to get all that stuff. We filled the trailers, and uh, and I uh, kept hitting the WalMarts. And it was funny because again, we're just doing this on personal credit cards. My credit cards are locking up. I'm on the phone with somebody and. Indonesia somewhere trying to get them to unlock my because I'm in different states I'm doing what a criminal would do going yeah. right down the highway into all these different states Damn. hitting item limits hitting dollar limits on purchases and I'm on the phone outside screaming like on what we need to verify so I'm like you're not verifying no I'm kicking off right it was it was so funny and then we get down there and we went back to that area where the um, gas station was because everybody went to that gas station a lot of shady stuff happening at that gas station um even with the local authorities like the police would go inside and get food and all this kind of stuff but outside people couldn't go in a lot of shady stuff going on you know you had good people desperate people um and we stayed there and we did a food drop there i think we were handing out water and food for nine hours it was 106 degrees heat index Damn. And we were nonstop there. And it was it was great because people were in that gas line. They had gas that day. And I just walked right into the gas station. I said, here's what we're doing. We're not going to interfere with people getting gas. We're going to set up out by the street. And do you guys need any food? And these people looked at me like, like they couldn't believe it. They, they, had never, she, they said, look, I'd never, I haven't eaten all week. And she's in a gas station full of food and drinks. It's very strange. Yeah, that's kind of odd. And they weren't letting anybody go into that gas station to get stuff. All the pharmacy, like Walgreens type stuff, CVS, were all boarded up because people were looting throughout the week and all this. Yeah. It was a very strange situation, but we just sat out there for nine hours and handed food out. I mean, my hands and feet and arms were all swollen. Like with the heat and, and just, I mean, I had pictures of my hands, it's like my fingers were sausages. We just, it was nonstop. We never took a break and we, we just did that. And then we when we were done, it was dodgy getting out of there because we only had so much food and so much water. And again, after nine hours, and I saw we were getting low towards the end of our drop and uh, I see all the cars still. And I'm like, it might be dodgy getting out of here. And we had to do the whole wrap everything up and punch. You know, it would have been nice to kind of sit there and savor that moment. But it was pretty dangerous at that point because people were pissed. I mean, we were handing out food and water. And when we had none left, people were getting angry. 
No. Which is, I mean, it's desperation, right? So then we got out of there and uh, came home and stuff, and I I started thinking, I was like, you know what? We have the right type of people, the military guys we have, and the support people that we have. Like, we can do something with this. Like, we can keep this going, and, and we can help people, right? We... We can do all the stuff that either people can't do or won't do, right? In in those kind of situations. That was the first one. That was the first one, yeah. And um, so my business partners and I started putting some stuff together to try and create it and, and turn it into something. And then we started helping out with the guys from Save Our Allies with the Afghans. Uh, we were focused mainly on Fort McCoy, Wisconsin. We would do clothing runs up there um, and take a bunch of supplies up there for them, spend long weekends up there working in the kind of Afghan villages, connecting with people. And it was kind of messy up there. You know, what an undertaking that is with, with those guys. Um, you know, and they've done a fantastic job and, and it was great of them to kind of, because I came in and I said, look, Kind of selfishly, I said, I don't want to come up here and volunteer for Save Our Allies. I don't want to work for you. I want to work with you on the stuff. And they were very receptive to that. And they enabled us to do that and helped us. And, and we worked alongside their um, volunteers and with the Team Rubicon guys that were up there with the 82nd Airborne. And there was an Army engineering company, I think, that was up there too. And then some of the State Department people. But that whole... The military, the NGO, and the State Department intermingling is uh, difficult to navigate. And again, I, I don't have a background in NGO type stuff, so that was a good way to learn that there's a lot going on when you start working at that kind of level. But that's that was a great experience. And then we were, so we were doing that, and then November came, and November was the 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 thing that happened with my daughter, right? So long story, my daughter had a brain tumor and we found out in basically 20 minutes she needed to have the first of two brain surgeries like out of nowhere. And my wife was eight months pregnant at that time. So we started dealing with that and you know, at the same time trying to really create something on this NGO side for Overwatch Foundation or what is now Overwatch Foundation. Obviously, I took some time away from kind of being out in the field and 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 doing yeah. some of the hands-on stuff for obvious reasons. Daughter with brain surgery, four years old, and then uh, new baby coming. But um, once that kind of cooled down, we start, you know, continuing to grow the thing, working on raising money and how to do that, how to do that properly and, and effectively. Um, and just creating contacts and all that, and then the Ukraine thing fucked up. And so all the humanitarian stuff we've been doing has been through Overwatch Foundation. And, you know, it's still, our, our 501c3 is pending. You know, we have a good team that helped us on the legal side working all that stuff out. And yeah, just looking forward to, to the future and, and having that infrastructure within that organization to allow us to do more of this kind of stuff because we have we have the guys that can get it done so let's go you know what i mean yeah man that's amazing yeah i never 
thought of doing anything like this. I never, you know, I never had a plan to, to do that. And it's just working. You know, we can we, we can make a difference with stuff and we're gonna we're gonna keep going with it. How's your daughter? She's good, yeah. I mean she's uh she's incredible. She's uh she's probably the the best human I've ever met. You know, and I have other kids, but there's something special about that little girl. And she still is in her physical therapy and pushing through all that and you know, it's the thing that's that's tough about it is it's a constant thing, right? I mean, you know, I think about I tore my pec a year ago and I had a year long recovery. That surgery I had to reattach it to my humerus. And I did all the physical therapy for a year. But then once it's healed, it's healed. It's over, right? My pec now is better than before I tore it. With this, she can, God willing, be great for the next five years, and then heaven forbid, something could pop up again. So every win is a win for now, yeah. and you don't know, you know, for tomorrow. But, you know, I, I, and, I, and I told my wife, I said, you know, I mentioned this to you too, I said, this stuff happens to people, and it's better that it happens to us than somebody else, because we can take it. You know, it's enough to break people, something yeah. like that. I mean, imagine. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, and, and the Ukraine thing's tough because now I'm halfway across the world or all the way across the world in a war zone. And, you know, families at home and there's heavy stuff happening at home with that. With that. It's like, you know, why do you do that? Why don't you just stay home with the family? But, you know, part of being a father, and you know, is being an example. And, and she knows that we went there. She's friends with Yuri's daughter. You know, my daughter's four, Yuri's daughter's three. And uh, she knows that, you know, dad went with, with me as dad to help him. Wow, that's powerful. And she'll know as we continue to do this stuff. And, you know, it's just a good way to be an example for, for the kids, right? Yeah. So... Yeah, so that's where we're at, and we're just trying to, you know, it's weird. The hurricane thing just kind of fell on the lap, and, and, and we're going to continue to do that. God, you know, heaven forbid there's any more hurricanes. I hope there never is, but um, that affect people like that. But, you know, we'll be there to help and do what we can. And the Ukraine thing fell on the lap as well, and, you know, I, I this is the kind of thing we're going to do. When these things pop up, we'll pop in, you know. Um, another thing that we're really doing with the foundation is we're using veterans, guys who, you know, are out or, you know, we have a couple guys who are more recently out and it helps them scratch that itch a little bit, being around other veterans, doing something that's, you know, doing a mission that's worthwhile, helping people. Um, you know, we're not running around trying to do anything crazy. Some of the stuff we've done has been pretty dangerous, but it's not like it's a group of warmongers trying to do something stupid, you know. Yeah. But I can see some of these guys light up when we're together, when we're doing this stuff, and, and that's pretty rewarding. So as we grow, again, same for the Ukraine mission, we're going to be looking for guys to, you know, special operators to do some of the crazy stuff we're doing, um, 
military veterans in general that can help and and civilians support people. We have for the foundation we have a, a great group of civilian support people that are very handy, very organized, that that are go getters. You know, for for those kind of missions, it doesn't always have to be special operations vets. Um, you know, I just want to help vets in general and give them, you know, a little bit of purpose, a little bit of a a goal to be able to help people and use some of their life skills to to do that. You know. Yeah, man, you're doing. It's incredible. It's, it really is. It's. Uh, you know, we're in the beginning, but I think I think there's something there for sure. I think there's something there too. I mean, just by hiring veterans and and I mean, uh, on top of all the other stuff you guys are doing, that's, I mean, saving lives, saving countries, say everything you're doing, and then you're also giving veterans who may be a little lost, you know, because it is a, it's tough yeah. to transition, you're giving them a purpose again and and something they can be proud of again and. That's a that's another big thing that's not really talked about is how do you find something that you're proud of what you're doing again after you leave exactly especially a special operations unit you know yeah and, I mean I um, I obviously you know I'm not gonna get into it right now but like yeah I mean I had a struggle kind of when I got done personally right um, just kind of dealing with life dealing with people what do I do next and you know I mean you've heard countless stories like that as well it's it's difficult and. I suppose there are resources to help, but we don't go and use those resources until yeah. we, until we hit the wall, right? So, um, you know, it's being able to help with some of that stuff and, and help veterans. That's a huge bonus that I never even anticipated yeah. doing this stuff. We just, hey, let's get the guys that we have and go help some people, and then you see that side of it, and you're like, man, this thing just, it's just it's so reward like it's like a reward snowball for everybody involved yeah you know as far as the difference you can make doing something like this so yeah well before we close it out i just want to again say thank you for coming and and sharing your experiences and and you know if you're looking to get involved the links are below they need guys they need special operations guys you need equipment all those links are below and uh man it's just it's a real honor talking to you i'm so glad that we could make this happen on such short notice yeah thanks for having me and um yeah it you're welcome it's it was truly an honor so do you know when you're going back over we don't know we have a um kind of cursory plan right now um we're trying to get funding and, and raise funds for some of the bigger stuff that we're looking to do in Ukraine but yeah I mean I don't I don't see how we don't go back you yeah. know I mean they, they need help so well I think you're going to get a lot of support so best of luck to you keep doing great things thank you Celebrate the Black Friday sales event at Woodhouse Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram in Blair. Step into a new Jeep that you can count on. From the awarded new Grand Cherokee to the capable 2022 Jeep Compass, the Jeep lineup won't compromise on power, technology, or comfort. Delivering confidence and convenience for 29 years. Woodhouse Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram in Blair is your trusted auto partner. Visit us off Highway 30 in Blair or online at WoodhouseChryslerJeepDodge.com. 
Today's show is sponsored by HelixSleep.com. Sleep, especially as you get older, is so critical, especially that deep, comforting sleep. Go to HelixSleep.com and take the sleep quiz. I took it and was matched with the Midnight Lux. Helix knows that everyone's unique, so they have several different mattress models to match based on your body type and sleep preferences. Once you match, your mattress comes right to your front door, shipped for free. When you receive your Helix mattress, you'll be hooked. It's so easy to unbox and you won't believe how well you sleep. You'll wake up feeling rested and refreshed. Helix mattresses are fiberglass free and cradle your body for essential support in every sleeping position. They have a 10-year warranty and Helix even has financing options and flexible payment plans. So a great night's sleep is never far away. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash SRS. That's helixsleep.com slash SRS. This is their best offer yet, and it's not going to last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. 